I'm not going to listen to this. Wait, you're chanting. I'm not going to Wait. hear this now. Film is a disease, Frank Capra said. When it infects your bloodstream, it takes over as the number one hormone. It plays Iago to your psyche. And as with heroin, the antidote to film is more film. Very nice. Now, as early as I can remember, the key issue for me was, what did it take to be a filmmaker in Hollywood? Even today, I still wonder, what does it take to be a professional or maybe even an artist in Hollywood? Now, how do you survive the constant uh, the tug-of-war between personal expression and commercial imperatives. What is the price you pay to work in Hollywood? Do you end up with a split personality? Do you make one for them, one for yourself? How about making ants in your plants of 1941? You can have Bob Hope, Mary Martin. Maybe Bing Crosby. Yeah, but dancers. Maybe Jack Benny and Rochester. A big-name band. What? Oh, no. I want to make a brother where art thou. When we talk about personal expression, I'm often reminded of Kazan's film, America, America the story of his uncle's journey from Anatolia to America, the story of so many immigrants who came to this country from a very, very foreign land. Come on now, yes, you're moving along, let's go. And I kind of identified with it, and I was very moved by it. Actually, I later saw myself making this same journey, but not from Anatolia, rather from my own neighborhood in New York, which was, in a sense, um, a very foreign land. Uh, I made that journey from that land to movie-making which was something unimaginable. Actually, when I was a little younger, there was another journey I wanted to make. It was a religious one. I wanted to be a priest. However, I soon realized that my real vocation, my real calling, was the movies. I didn't really see a conflict between the church and the movies, the sacred and the profane. Obviously, there are major differences, but I could also see great similarities between a church and a movie house. Both are places for people to come together and share a common experience. And I believe there's a spirituality in films, even if it's not one which can supplant faith. I find that over the years, many films address themselves to the spiritual side of man's nature. From Griffith's film Intolerance, to John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath, to Hitchcock's Vertigo, to Kubrick's 2001, and so many more. It's as if movies answered an ancient quest for the common unconscious. They fulfill a spiritual need that people have to share a common memory. The Pink Smoke presents... The Pure Cinema Podcast. Welcome to the show. Season three, and somebody out there is wondering what is the pink smoke? Yeah. Besides a reference, vague reference to a Kurosawa high and low. Which I love, by the way. Yeah, if you're curious, the pink smoke is our new partner. We're still with the Now Playing Network, but we have taken on a website partner in them, and they are a New York-based long-form film criticism site. Some dudes that we have been friendly with online and that we have a lot in common with in terms of our love of all different kinds of cinema. And we thought we wanted to find a way to extend the reach of the show a little bit, and they seemed game, so... Yeah, Welcome. I think, we're, I mean, our mission to, you know, keep films alive in the conversation, I feel like when I looked at their website, it really got me excited with what they do criticism-wise, the deep dives, seeing stuff on John Vernon and Walter Hill. It's all the same. 
you know, in fact, uh, I just looked at something they posted, like the the Pink Smoke 100, and I laughed at how many of the things in that 100 will come up on different episodes of our show. Yeah. So I felt like this. And also, it's cool that they're East Coast Cinephiles and we're West Coast Cinephiles. So it feels like either way, it's super exciting. We're launching season three with new changes, the new logo. Yeah. Mr. Ryan Biddle uh, made that logo for us. And he also made a classic version of that logo first. The, the, he made the actual logo. And then we looked at the colors of their uh, of their site and was like, I'd love to see what that did. And suddenly we had a whole new logo. But we'll also be posting the original one at some point and some surprises ahead with that man. Yeah, absolutely. But we're really excited about this merger. If you haven't checked out the Pink Smoke, head over there. We have our own tab on the site. You can go there and look at all the episodes at the same time and scroll through, re-listen, check out an episode you haven't heard. And if you're a new listener, welcome aboard. Maybe you're a Pink Smoke reader that's checking out the show for the first time. See what you think of us. If you like them, we have a feeling you'll probably like us and vice versa, but we hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, we're in our third season. We got new theme music. We had a little quote there from Martin Scorsese at the top. We thought might be sort of fitting to this episode yeah. and sort of fitting to the third season. Yeah, and we we were at one point going to uh, start with uh, winter it just to be like summer. And then we kept changing our mind a million times, changing topics what to launch with. But we've been off for a few weeks, and it's the perfect – for this kind of show, I think it's the – we've been off for the perfect amount of time to come back feeling like kind of excited to like retackle a lot of these films. But, you know, you guys, uh, as the listeners, have kept it really interesting between uh, – somebody started a Pure Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Yeah, Pure which, Cinema Movie Club. Go check it out. Join in that group it's which fun. Is super fun to yeah. see and it just you know it keeps the spark going and and also we saw a few movies together oh we saw you know we got to see a fan of thread together which was a blast we might talk about that more next time next episode yeah and i don't know i think we're you know even getting to do this in person is a cool way to re-kick re-kick off again so. yeah we haven't done an in-person show just me and you since um it's been a while yeah it's been a while and we're in like a crazy bunker <laughs> a cinephile bunker right now which is pretty <laughs> rad uh it has to be seen to be understood yeah uh, but yeah so lots to lots to look forward to lots of shows coming so there'll be 12 new episodes coming every two weeks for those who don't know the score if 12 uh, every two weeks isn't uh, enough an episode every two weeks that we have a patreon account uh which, you know, people have been super supportive of. One of the things we're doing on our Patreon is, uh, right now, is an ABC's oh, A to Z of directors, film directors that we uh, go every three letters, and we choose somebody who represents that letter. Often it'll be somebody you would not predict, we, not on purpose necessarily. And we kind of are just riffing on one film by each of those filmmakers. So it's it's a fun series to kind of, I think we we turned a corner with Patreon where we realized it's fun to make it more of a game and kind of offer new content that is actually bonus and fun and different from the show. So if you're looking for a fix of that, we're on there doing that, having fun. Uh, we both have our side shows. Shockwaves is still going strong. Just the disc going strong. Uh, lots of cinephile stuff happening. Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't even touched on what our topic is today. It's a big topic, man. I'll tell you what. Uh, we talked about a lot of options, and we wanted to start strong, a uh, new season. And then a one-word topic came, which you probably know because you're probably reading the thing. <laughs> and that topic is America. Yeah. And I, I do like thinking about movies in the quasi-abstract and just like, what does that mean to me? And it... It means rewriting this list three or four times because I'm just, just having that as a thing was really hard for me to, I had some movies where I'm like, yes, that's the perfect representation of how I feel about, it makes me feel America. And then I was like, no, but this one's better. And, you know. And anyway. also, it's a, you know what I liked about this one as I started is imagine how much this would list 
would change depending on what the circumstances of what America is in that moment. And not that we always pick our films to, you know, to reflect the political situation right now, but just that word inherently changes yeah. with life or whatever you're doing, also age. And I think, I don't know, I think, I, I'm also partially curious because I was curious what you would pick and what people would think in terms of reacting to some of these things. I mean, I was just, you know, marching this weekend, you know, in the, in the protest Women's March and... Yeah, it's pretty inspiring in a way. So it's easy to get down on America about certain things, but sometimes going through tough times actually rallies people together and, and creates like, you know, something dynamic in the culture, which maybe our generation hasn't had too many. You know, our generation never went to Vietnam. You know, we know we haven't had that thing we're forced to do. And so it's interesting. So who knows? I'm curious which directions we take this one. And also, I don't know about you, but I definitely tried to go as much with my gut and as, as possible. A couple things changed, but I did try to go with like an instinctual thing, less intellectual in my case. I don't know. No, oh, it'll be interesting. I think I maybe overthought some of these, but ultimately I feel like there's a lot of positivity in a lot of the mm-hmm. movies that I picked. And I should mention briefly, there's several films which, had we not already spoken about them, would have probably been on my list. Things like The Last Detail, Emperor of the North. Hard Times, Vanishing Point, mm-hmm. all those could have been America movies for me. Uh, Lost in America would have been on my list. Oh, yeah. Uh, had I not. And a couple biggies that, even though we haven't really talked about them, they're so overt, but uh, and they're kind of inverses of each other. But to me, Citizen Kane and There Will Be Blood, uh, you know, we talked about There Will Be Blood in kind of roundabout ways uh, on the show, but I feel like they are such... Uh, major, especially in that case of being about capitalism itself and America's lifeblood. I think both those films would perfectly sum up this topic without being on our actual list. Yeah. Um, and also it's, it depends on your perspective, you know, like it's interesting having been born in New York uh, and then moving at a young age. One thing that I thought about a lot when putting this list together was how non-Americans, Americans will never understand how much people outside of America think and dream about America. So internally, you're born here, so you understand the culture from within. But if you ever spend a long period of time outside of America or you were born outside of America, you really do dream of America, weirdly enough. Uh, I can only speak from my example. The amount of time you spend thinking about this thing built on ideals and, and an idea of a country, largely because we export our entire pop culture to these countries and this vision. But like when you're in America, you can't possibly dream of it that way. You might dream of other places to live, but it's a totally different vantage point. And I think it's fascinating to me to see how foreign directors also view that. So, And that might come up in one of the picks on the list, but I just think it's it's something unknowable when you're born within a culture. Uh, but if you ever step foot outside, you know, that's a very different perspective. No, that's true. And I, I have to admit that I didn't approach the list that way. So I'm curious where that comes up on yours. I just fantasized about America a lot. Yeah, no, like, you totally yeah. have a different perspective that's on weird. this. And I totally forgot about that. Because I think of you as an American dude. I mean, I mean I'm, but, you know, I'm, I was born here, yeah. uh, but I but I spent most of my time away, especially at a young age. And that, and that creates a real shadow of like, oh, American culture. Every TV, you turn on TV if you live in a different country. And I'm talking 10, 15, 20 years ago, every single show would be American. So it's MASH, Cheers, Magnum PI, Moonlighting. Like, that's what I grew up And you're like, okay, so that means I'm experiencing the culture I'm not getting to live. So I think a lot of what you do is then channel that. And I don't know if it will come through at all in my picks, but I think it's kind of a fascinating uh, approach to it. Okay. So let's get into this. Maybe just briefly, if we are having any new listeners, you may not be familiar with our format. It's pretty simple. We pick a topic and we have something called Five Films Because. This is not a top five. These are five films that we want to highlight for whatever reason. They could be mediocre films, but they mean something to us and they fit the topic and we want to talk about them. So that's what that's sort of what defines our show is this list and that it's not a top five. And some weeks we don't even do it five. We do pairings and doubles yeah, and there, tens, but there may be the more than five yeah. on my list, but not much more than what? five. What? Just 
not, not much more. What the shit? I, I, I know. All right, well, you go first. Number five. All right. So one of the things about uh, American films that in America that excites me, and in fact, how I chose to go to grad school, is I'm really drawn to Southern Gothic. And it's something I wasn't aware of until the last few years, to be perfectly honest. I must have been subliminally drawn to it. I went to uh, film school in Savannah based on The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the book, not the movie. <laughs> I was like, not a great movie. Uh, we should have seen Spacey coming in that one. But uh, yeah, no, there's a film that I feel like gets at kind of the noir Southern Gothic roots, but also feeling kind of modern. And that is a film that feels like the first film by a director. It feels like a debut movie, but instead I think it's his like 33rd film. And that is John Huston's Wise Blood. I wasn't speeding, was I? No, he wasn't speeding. Well, I was driving on the right side of the road. Yes, he was on the right side of the road. That's right. What'd you stop me for then? I just don't like your face. Well, I don't like yours either. Where's your license? I don't need a license. No, I don't reckon you do need one. Oh, good call. 1979. It, it does not feel like a guy's like later feature film. This film has energy, it has eccentricities. It is a very strange, uh, small, it's a small indie. I mean, that's the thing. And he, and he made it totally independently. No studio money. Basically, one of my drawings here is, uh, because I went to film school in Savannah, Flannery O'Connor is the most famous uh, writer in Savannah. I think she was born in Savannah. And so you get to know her work. And then I start tracking down films. that should be not a lot of adaptations, but this is actually the first. And this is a movie that's really, I actually rewatched it for the show, having not seen it. And I wanted to include it on my list. But I was, I was just a little nervous because I hadn't seen it in a long time. But it's basically, a, I mean, it starts with um, Hazel Motes is the character. When was the last time you saw this? Just out of It's been a while. Curiosity. I remember Brad Dourif and how good he is in it. But. So Brad Dourif gets out of the military, returns home to somewhere near Macon, Georgia. This is on Filmstruck, by the way, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I saw it on Amazon Prime, too. It's oh, nice. Criterion have a DVD, but not a Blu-ray. Got it. The thing of what's interesting about this film is the motivations of certain things is never made completely clear. So even when you get to the end of this movie, you'll be questioning a little bit why the events took place. But, you know, he comes out of the military, and the first thing he does is buy, he buy, trades in his uniform, goes back to his tiny town in uh, Georgia, and he buys a black hat that basically looks like the preacher from uh, <laughs> the shirt I'm wearing right now. Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. Uh, and, and, a, and a coat, and he just suddenly looks like a preacher, but he doesn't buy it for that reason. He takes a taxi ride, wants to go to the city, uh, and he He's uh, basically the cab driver says, oh, you look like, you know, just treats him like he's a preacher. And he said, listen, get this. There ain't but one thing that I want you to understand. And that's that I don't believe in anything. Nothing at all. Nothing. He's definitely got a big chip on his sh shoulder. You're not really sure what's driving him. There's some flashbacks to you see his grandfather, which is uh, John Houston. Fire oh, and Houston's Brimstone. in the movie. I totally forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, and just in these weird flashbacks where he's a kid and he's like, you know, very, very, you know, kind of fire brimstone kind of thing. So it, throughout this movie, you can't tell what the movie necessarily feels about religion because in one half of this movie it feels bitingly satirical especially against people who you know are, are prophets who stand on cars and by side street a culture that doesn't really feel like it exists nowadays but on the other hand it feels like maybe it's also pro-religion because it does feel like there's some sort of redemption in religion by the end it's really confused I, I think which maybe is something in Flannery O'Connor's work itself or maybe seeing John Huston's working out in the movie either way it's so eccentric and funny and strange I mean some of these characters he so basically gets the 
town, he starts to uh, realize maybe he should become a preacher, but a preacher against uh, Christ. So he starts the Church of Truth without Christ. I love the tagline is, where the blind don't see and the lame don't walk, and what's dead stays that way. Uh, Because he's so disgusted at people being taken by a religious conman. And one of these conmans is, uh, you know, we mentioned this one briefly when Harry Dean Stanton passed away. And this is a small role. He's he's only in the first, like, 30 minutes uh, as as a Hawks. Uh, But he plays a blind preacher uh, who's basically conning uh, everyone and he's and his daughter who has the best name ever uh, Sabbath Lily who's instantly got a crush on Brad Dorf and none of it but you don't really understand it like where is this coming from these people are all like one's worse than the next what'd you follow me for I never followed you she said you was following I ain't followed you nowhere so I followed her I don't want that thing take it I don't want it you take it and shut up before I hit you I won't have it you take it like I told you He never followed you. I got it, but it ain't mine. I followed her to say I wasn't beholden to none of her fast eye like she gave me back there. What do you mean? I never looked at you with no fast eye. I only watched you tearing up that track. Papa, he tore it up in little pieces. He tore it up and sprinkled it all over the ground like salt. Followed me. Nobody could follow you. I can hear the urge of Jesus in his voice. Jesus. Now, you listen to me, boy. Jesus is a fact. You can't run away from Jesus. No, you listen. I come a long way since I'd believe in anything. And I come halfway around the world. No, you you ain't come so far that you could keep from following me, though, have you, boy? Some preacher's left his mark on you. Did you follow me for me to take it off or to give you another one? But uh, as we go along, obviously, uh, I, I, without spoilers, uh, you can just tell that Harry Dean's a con man from frame one. You just don't know how long the con is. And so you're watching that side of things. But then it gets he basically meets a uh, – on this first day there, he meets a kind of simpleton who ends up like uh, saying he has like wi- the power of wise blood where he can see things before they happen. That's uh, Dan Shore, um, mm. who's, who's really funny and Love strange. Dan Shore. And it just – it has the weirdest tension. And a lot of them are faithful to the book. Like I want, he's obsessed by like this weird mummy that's in this museum that he believes has like you know has like powers and at some point he steals a, a gorilla costume of somebody at a movie premiere it, it kind of defies it probably sounds like a big old mess from the way I'm talking about but it's really that world of the eccentric fringe dwelling characters that lie within America especially a southern town uh, the way this one does it's in America that from the outside you would think doesn't exist you'd go oh, this kind of fake and then you go down to some of these towns and you see characters like this you see, I mean, when I was first in Savannah, I couldn't couldn't believe how accurate that book was that I'd read because there were exact characters like that, and it and it made you realize it was kind of a different world. Uh, and the cool thing about this film, it does go fairly noir in some of its trappings. As uh, what's his name, the great um, William Hickey. Oh, William Hickey lovely. is basically uh, just a drunk, a town drunk that um, Ned Beatty finds. Ned Beatty playing a character called Hoover Schultz. Oh. I mean, all the character names are ridiculous. Great. But, uh, Ned Beatty is, tries to get Brad Dorf to be his like go-to preacher and said like you can be the guy we can make a big con and you know of course Brad Dorf's on this like kick of trying to be truthful so he won't do it so instead he gets Hickey to do it dressed exactly the same and they get lots of money and they're doing really well so of course Dorf targets him and it goes down a noir kind of a darker noir path and then it goes into a really surprising uh, you know kind of bizarre ending I definitely don't want to spoil it because it's 
like, you know, these films don't have a lot of in the story realm. But what I like about this one is when it ends, you really will have to work out kind of your relationship to it and the characters to to know what you think it was about, because I don't think it's A to B. And I think that's something I appreciate with Houston. I think he kept taking risks in his work, you know? In his day, film was still some a new media. So when you did something different, it was like, cool. But this is no longer the case when he made, when Wise Blood was made. It is an obscure movie, and I, I, I wonder if it won't always be an obscure movie. Like I say, it's not, you know, it's not Sierra Madre, you know, which is just a great story, you know, a really cool story, you know. Um, it's an adventure story, and it's, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have depth, but it just, it isn't weird. It isn't gothic, and it isn't about something that's a little disturbing. It's about a very extreme part of ourselves. You know, we're all, you know, you can't look at a film like that and not think, you know, we're all liars. You know, none of us are really, truly true to our ideas. But I just love Fringe America. I love Oddball America, uh, a movie that came very close to my list, but it was just it was Mystery Train by Jarmusch. It was, it was in my five spot right till before because I hadn't seen it in forever. I watched it, and I was just laughing so much and because and, it's about the shadow of Elvis. And, you know, yeah, but I, but in one. the end, I was like, you know, no, I, you know that's, even though I love that movie. Stranger Than Paradise, almost. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. Me. Strangers are one of my favorite movies in general. They'll come up, I bet, on another show for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something about the world of this that I feel like doesn't really exist anymore. And may- maybe it does somewhere out there, but I feel like even though it is kind of fantastic because that's the Flannery O'Connor stuff is a mixture of the fantastic with the rural and, and Southern Gothic charm. Uh, this is a movie I, I think more people should seek out. I think it's definitely underseen. Yeah, this is one I've been, I, I think I still have an eBay alert for the DVD because I've been waiting to buy it, but I'm always kind of like, oh, but Blu-ray, maybe there's a Blu-ray coming. And now be it's nice. been so long that, then since I've seen it that it's almost all unfamiliar to me. And so it is on Filmstruck. It's on Amazon Prime. I'm going to have to watch it like soon. Because it looked fine on there, so I, I would great. recommend it. No, that's good. Um, well, that's a good number five. Good way to start. I started with uh, Frank Capra, and uh, the movie's called Lady for a Day. It's from Dave, the dude wants to see you, Annie. He's over to Missouri Martin. Yeah, I know. How's Spiggin, Smiley? Terrible. Looks like everybody's broke. Must be tough on them. Ah, stop yapping. Didn't you hear the president over the radio? I tell you, get on over to the casino. They got a hit over there. They have? Sure, spread it around. Don't forget about Missouri Martin. The dude said it was important. All right, I won't. Apple. Apple. Capra is one of those directors that I think it's hard not to think about America when you think about him because of some of his biggest movies. You know, you've got your Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You've got Mr. Deeds. You've got It's a Wonderful Life. These are, you know, movies that are in a lot of ways woven into the fabric of America. Um, maybe even help define America. Like Capra-esque, kind of. I feel like, is a certain period of Americana. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But this one, I feel like it's it's an earlier one and it feels a little bit more, I don't know, it, it feels a little different. It's definitely got the Capra to it, but it's got some other things going on. And the basic idea is that there's a gangster. He's a gangster slash gambler played by um, Warren William, who is this dude. He, actually, his character's name is Dave the Dude in the movie, <laughs> which I kind of like. But Warren William's a really great pre-code actor. He's, he's reminds me a little bit of like a Barrymore. He's like sort of an off-brand Barrymore, if you will. He's good. 
so he's a big gambler. And one of the things he does every time he goes to gamble is he buys an apple from this woman, Apple Annie, who is basically kind of a street person, but he won't gamble unless he can do that. So she runs into a crisis where she has been having somebody steal stationery from this really nice hotel in town so she can write letters to her daughter who lives overseas. And she finds out that her daughter's actually coming to visit and she has like a panic attack Hmm. because her daughter thinks she lives at this nice hotel. She's been kind of making up stories about how she's kind of a woman about town. And so the gambler guy takes it upon himself to kind of make her a quote lady for a day, lady for the time that her daughter's there. So sounds pretty womanish. It is. A woman could have borrowed that. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a way better movie than that. But yeah, it's definitely like got that similar. Thing. So they set her up at the hotel and it's a lot of, you know, comedy of the screwball type in terms of like her trying to be proper and then his, him and his gangster, fr- like basically they need to create an atmosphere of she's a woman of society. So they have to create society, which means bringing, you know, uh, criminals, gangster dudes in to party situations and sort of training them to be proper. That stuff is really funny. Just to see these guys try and be, you know, kind of cultured is yeah. really humorous. But there's a great supporting cast, uh, Guy Kibbe, who is one of these actors that, if you watch TCM a lot, you see this guy come up. He plays, uh, well, he's like, a, he's like a gambler type. They need to get her a husband, and he ends up being the husband. And anyway, it's just really cute and funny and clever. Like, the dialogue is really sharp. And there's just something about the movie that, I don't know, it just makes, it's, Capra does that for me. He just really speaks to the American experience. I found a really great quote from him talking about how, when he was about 10 years old, he hated America. When you were 10 years old, you said, I hated being poor, hated the ghetto, and hated America. And yet, more than any other director in the history of the film medium, you took upon yourself those characters, those situations, which serve to vindicate capitalist democracy. You called yourself the Hoi Polloi's boy. Yes. What transition from an angry 10-year-old? Part of growth, I would say. Uh, uh, as a 10-year-old... Uh, you were a Sicilian immigrant. Yes. And uh, I came here just, and we were, I was six years old, just old enough to, to see and not understand. Uh, and and uh, I saw my father and mother suffering and, and working, and I saw everybody else, uh, and I saw the rich people in America, and I saw the poor people that we were. And and in seeing those things, I decided that it was not for me. I was not going to be part of this, take money part of this. And I, of course, I hated America because of the I, I thought people were so uh, cruel to my family, you know, to my mother. She worked ten hours a day, and I wanted to tired of my father worked. And I thought they were much happier where they when they came from. They were much happier where they came from. They had a little farm in Sicily. Everything was fine. They come over here. They have to go to work. And uh, this was my uh, my feeling at the time. I, I hated this the country and the country. I hated how my family was being treated. And you you said of your mother, her seed and the seed of millions like her created the American dream. I, sa- I said that at a much later date in my life. I said that not over a couple of years ago because of day. And uh, as I grew up, of course, I discovered America. And I've discovered America, and I fell in love with America. When I, when I started working in Hollywood, I had, I had become uh, very much enamored of America and the American character. I think it's really interesting that a guy starts from that position and ends up being one of the most iconic American filmmakers in the history of cinema. You know, just I'd never heard. Wait, I hate did America. you just say we're a country immigrant? 
I mean, <laughs> we'll keep our political sides aside, but uh, no, I mean, it's it's true when you look at almost every great thing that was created in this country, it's created from someone from somewhere else right? originally. It's yeah. kind of an amazing... Uh, yeah, so world. I mean, so there's something about that and what he brings to cinema. And you can say maybe it's a little bit schmaltzy, but I, and I do think that from time to time, but this movie is just before that. I mean, it's before the Mr. Smith and the Mr. Deeds and all that. And there's something about it. It feels like an earlier, looser, more fun, uh, less small. I mean, there is some emotion to it, which I do like, but it doesn't go over the top for me. So yeah, anyway, the, the dialogue is written by Robert Riskin, who would go on to write It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, You Can't Take It With You, all those movies for Capra. So he's a good writer, but I feel like this is in the vein of like, you know, pre-code fast talking comedies. Mm-hmm. It's just a really clever premise. And I, it, it was remade, I think, um, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, remake, but it's not as good. But yeah, it's it's just one of those movies that I find really delightful. And uh, I'd watch it. I, I really, you know, I, I like the Capra I've seen. I haven't seen that one. So yeah. And, and I do agree. I think he has a really unique perspective on America. And it's interesting. It kind of t- tailors back to what I was saying, like, you just don't realize how people view the country. There's no uniform way to view what we're experiencing. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's good. Um, my number four is one I saw way back in a film class and did nothing for me when I was young. And then I lived in this city for a while and just got the Blu-ray and had a totally different experience of it. Perfect for this list. It's number four is Medium Cool by Haskell Wexler in 1969. Innocence is a feeling. Awareness is a feeling. How does it feel to stop feeling? You may discover violence at a time when an entire country learns to feel nothing. America's wonderful. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. It really makes sense. Paramount Pictures presents Medium Cool. Man, talk about balls. Like, here we are all are going, yeah, I'll wear a pink hat and I'll go protest. Haskell Wexler, like, made a film with the backdrop of protest. Of the be- Like, I mean, I'm sure there was a script and it, there was a credited writer, but it feels like they were making this up alive in the streets. And they're making a narrative film, you know, with actual drama and, and plot points with the backdrop of what was the Democratic National Convention's one, one plot point towards the end of this film where, you know, that literally ends up in actual protest and riots and danger. I, there, and there's a classic line where you hear someone go, look out Wexel, because <laughs> he's about to, I can't remember if it was a bomb, like a firebomb from the cops is about to hit him. And, he, and the camera suddenly jolts back. Oh, wow. And you realize, like, they just left that in the edit. But what's most impressive about this movie there's a couple reasons to watch it a uh number one you watch it because you're bob foster fan and we all are robert foster fans even if we don't know the station's been letting the cops and the fbi study our footage you're you're putting me on you're kidding me what am i a fake how can i go out and cover a story it's a wonder more cameras haven't been smashed. And this is basically, uh, most of us grew up with him post, he's probably 50 years old or onwards is how we remember him. This is like the hottest 30-year-old Robert Forster you'll ever see. There's an amazing love scene with a woman where they're both just completely naked chasing each other around a house. And it's so freaky. <laughs> the thing that. about this movie is it is the most Godardian film I've ever seen, not by Godard. Compared, I can't think of a single film that has ever captured spirit. And what's amazing about that is it's right at the same time Godard's making films. So it not only is a Godardian. It's actually from the same period of Pete Goddard. In fact, it, the movie it reminded me the most of in in some of the theme, not so much the style, was Weekend 
which is one of my favorite of his films, and that was made only one year before. So, I mean, these are movies like butting up right against each other. And, you know, some people are wearing their influence a little more subtle, but Haskell, obviously, I think was partially moved by making a movie in the streets and moved by you can make a film political and saw his, like, political situation and thought, fuck it, I can actually do something and not just be part of the Hollywood machine that he, you know, shooting great films. The civil rights movement is really part of the anti-war movement because war essentially is part of racism. Uh, War says that there's the other, there's the bad guys, they're different, and you can kill them. I was in anti-war movements since I was a teenager. And after World War II, where I was decorated and got the Silver Star and all that stuff, I began to think that there's got to be better ways to deal with the problems of the world than killing other people. He's a wonderful cinematographer in the sense that he always made everything feel more lifelike. I think that's what he brings to movies. He always like would take it off the dolly and he would get in there. Uh, I was afraid of Virginia Woolf or even the parts of Days of Heaven that he shot. You can tell the difference uh, with his work. But this movie is fascinating. So it basically follows a guy who is a journalist slash maybe cameraman. It's kind of murky. He looks like a cameraman. And it just opens with them shooting <laughs> a victim of a car crash. And the woman's just lying there dead and they're just... Filming. So it almost has a nightcrawler start. And then it just follows these characters. It's really sporadic. It jumps around America with them. They actually go to a number. They go to a, a black civil rights protest at one point, which was obviously shot in the real location. And it was a real protest. And everyone's in the mud. Then there's this part of Chicago. So I, I lived in Chicago for a while. Also, that's a big turn on of this film because um, Studs Terkel, who's you know famously probably the best interviewer of all time and wrote all these books on uh, interviews, uh, was the he was like the key historian that they used, and he gets like an actual on-screen credit in this film. I think he's got a small role. In Chicago, before I um, started shooting Medium Cool, I was searching. I, I wanted to know what's happening in this city now. And so Studs Terkel says, well, in Uptown, they're sort of segregated. Things are bad, but they're organizing and they're trying to make things better, you know? And so um, I thought, well, that's the lifeblood of Chicago, which you don't, which I never learned that was happening when I was here in L.A. Because I've been away from Chicago for a while. If it weren't for Studs Terkel, I would have never met the people in Appalachia. I would, the, the, the man that plays the father was an organizer for the people in, in Uptown. You know, all those people, the people in the in the black militancies, those were people that they wouldn't talk to me without Stud saying this guy's okay. No, don't honey me. No, no. It creates this, I know, this very alive vision of what people were doing, that they were in history as it's changing, uh, as racial tensions are changing, as uh, sexual mores were changing. And it feels so edgy because I have no idea what's about to happen. And then I think about it, I'm like, uh, that's 40 years ago, you know, like this kind of filmmaking that's so alive. But, you know, there's parts of it that really surprised me. There's this part of Chicago, which I never knew this, and it's a whole pretty big storyline in the film that is all made, it's a poverty kind of, it's called a part of Poverty Row, and it's all made of people who have come up from like South Virginia. And it's like, so it's like suddenly you're looking at like the Okies, you know, from Tom Joad and, you're, and you know, Grapes of Wrath stuff. And you're like, oh, weird. I wouldn't have known that was an actual part of Chicago of all places. And that becomes a storyline that his character gets involved in. Uh, and then there's a scene where he goes and talks to like a couple ex-black or people who might be in the Black Panthers. And you realize you don't really know where it's going and you don't know what parts are scripted. And then suddenly it seems like, 
I don't know. It feels like Rob Frost is now getting grilled by a guy for real. And it just feels kind of dangerous. And I don't know. I don't think there's really any other... Even Goddard never really made movies quite like that. And it's really surprisingly uh, enjoyable to watch, too, besides the politics. It's shot really well. And especially because it just looks dynamite on this uh, Criterion Blu-ray. I think it's a movie that speaks to now perfectly. And there's a, there's two only two films on my list that felt to me that I was surprised at how much they related to the moment we are in right now. No matter what side, uh, political side you're on, this film seems to be charged with that feeling that things need to change, you know. And probably an eruption of some kind is destined to happen. That's kind of, And we've already had a couple in the last couple, you know, year and a half. So... Uh, yeah, highly recommend it if that sounds like your cup of tea. Just seeing somebody stage a movie with the backdrop of reality is totally fresh and, and you know, just different. Yeah, I was going to agree. I, that, that it has an energy about it that I don't think I've felt. And, I, you know, I can't say that it's not partially because I know that it's shot in that environment, but you can feel it. It changes the whole energy of the movie. Well, because it can't be scripted. Because, like, even though it has a script, you can't control all those people. They didn't have anybody wrangling, and they don't know what's going to happen at the convention. No, right? They don't know how that that could have gone the other way, and then you're in a different situation. So suddenly, it's just like keep filming, like just keep rolling. And I mean, also, I look at an actor in that, and I go, man, that's you got yet some. You know, you had some guts to, like, go out there with a camera and just see what happens. I mean, if you know, people throw bombs, cops shoot at crowds in, in real life in these situations, and you're just making a movie. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. It's a movie that I just, I mean, we're, we're both, obviously, we mentioned huge Robert Forster fans, and this is one for the books for him, like, one of his great performances. I mean, you could watch it with Jackie Brown. It'd be an interesting, yeah. I don't know, that there's too many connections other than him, but he's just such an incredible presence. And he's a different actor back then like uh, he's growing into being almost more like a, a western star I feel like who's like really quiet and confident and each line has gravity and back then he's much it's much more alive and it, I wouldn't say he's less confident but he's much more reactive in the moment yeah and it's much more naturalistic very different kind of performance style but yeah, uh, but yeah you know it's and I think it's the only film Haskell ever directed from I believe so yeah I which is interesting so. yeah it's a great it doesn't look like it's on film stroke unfortunately but but the, that blu-rays definitely must have oh, yeah, it's great I just uh, I just only rewatched it for this it was great all right, so I'm going to go, as I often do, a little bit in a different direction. <laughs> when I think about America, one thing that kept coming up on my list and it comes up in my next two picks is automobiles. So cars are a big deal. And, uh, you know, the idea of road trips and things like that also entered in. These don't happen to do that thing, but that's a whole other aspect of American movies the road trip movie. I mean, obviously you can do that in other countries, but I feel like a lot of uh, road trip movies that I love are American road trip movies. But again, it has to do with automobiles. So what is it about automobiles? I don't know. But the other thing... It could be, well, even going across countries, I think that goes back to the old cart that had to go all the way out west to find yeah. you know, a place to set up shop. You yeah. Know? Well, and also I've got another pick that sort of ties into that yeah. later in the list. But the other part of it that goes with cars is hucksterism, selling yeah. cars. Uh, I'm talking about used cars. Coming this summer from Columbia Pictures, a movie that asks the question, would you buy a used car from this man? Oh, here at New Deal Used Cars, we are uh, stripping away inflation. We're taking off those high prices. Or this there, man. We have a group of immoral charlatans masquerading as businessmen. They will stoop to the lowest. Hold on, Roy. Would you buy a used car from this man? Sign your name. Right on. Or from this man. I want you to look inside. No, I don't want to look inside. Oh, just get in the car. Get in there. 
Well, these people did. Used cars, about a group of dedicated businessmen who'll do anything to sell a car. We can't do a commercial wearing these. We'll come off looking like a couple of $695, you got it. Let's take a look under the hood, shall we? Uh, the Zemeckis film. Uh, that one, to me... It's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It's one of the great film. comedies of the 80s, and I do feel like it's a little underappreciated, yep. which I don't fully get. Because like when Twilight Time announced their Blu-ray, I'm like, oh, shit, that's going to sell out in a quick minute. And it didn't. And then I think it's out of print now. <laughs> but um, but anyway, uh, great, great movie. Um, really interesting point in Kurt Russell's career because, you know, you've already got him having worked, you know, he did the Disney thing, you know, he did the Dexter Riley, he did, you know, Barefoot Executive. I love all those movies, to be honest. I, I don't mean to make it sound like we, on a daily basis, I hung out with Walt Disney. That's, that's not the case. Maybe seven or eight times I had this opportunity over, I don't know, a year and a half period before he died. But I found something, they found something the other day in the archives, it was a letter that I had written to him. And I was thanking him for something. I was just showing it uh, a couple of weeks ago. What was interesting about the letter was it was from this young guy who was, I guess it was 13 or 14. But it showed the relationship we had. Because I was, I liked him. He liked me. I was friendly. He reminded me of my grandfather. But here's a guy who really wanted to pivot his career, finds John Carpenter, does the Elvis movie. I mean, he did some other stuff before that. He did something called The Deadly Tower, which is a really interesting TV movie where he plays Charles Whitman, which oh, I've right. talked yeah, about that yeah, on the yeah, show yeah, in the yeah. past. That's right. Totally crazy. That was in like 1974. So then you've and got... still before his peak with Overboard. <laughs> yes. There's pre and post. You know I love Overboard. I do too, actually. They're remaking that, I think, right? Mm. Anyway, we'll talk what, about With The that. Rock or something? Yeah, something, <laughs> who knows. Anyway, so Kurt does Elvis and does a great job yeah, with Elvis in 1979. And then follows it up with used cars in 1980, which is really interesting because he's so going against his Disney persona. I mean, Rudy Russo is to me one of the great quintessential American characters. He, you know, he's a guy with a dream. He wants to run for office, (laughs) but he's got a really great way of ingratiating himself and not being a total scumbag while still being kind of slimy. Hi there. How you doing? Say, this your $10? You know, I saw it floating underneath the car. I picked it up. <laughs> there you are, Mr. Uh, what's your name? Stanley Dualski. Polish, eh? What a coincidence. Rudy Polanski, how are you? Hey, I like that watch, Stan. Great shoes. Love them. Thanks. So, Stan, you, uh, you want to buy this Buick Centurion, huh? Good choice. Smart man. You got good taste. I'll tell you something. A lot of people have these days. Nice to see somebody finally walk on this lot who knows a good car when he sees one, I'll tell you. So, we uh, we read it up? Yeah, well, actually, I was, I was just looking. Oh, hey, terrific. Terrific. That's what we're here for, Stan. Here you can look, browse, peek, touch, feel, taste, smell, do anything you want, take all the time you want. Nobody's going to pressure anybody around here, Stan. You know something, though, Stan? I really think you ought to buy this Buick. Mm-hmm. I think you ought to buy it today, right now. You want to know why? Because this Buick is you. The color is you. Look at it. This is your car. Stanley Dewoski is Buick Centurion Convertible. Now, I know what you're thinking, Stan. You're thinking, can I afford to buy a car like this? Huh? Am I right? Seriously, Stan, you can't afford not to buy a car like this, and I'm going to make it easy on you. When you add this whole thing up, taking into account inflation rate, insurance savings, gas savings, ease and comfort, you're going to come out $10,000 ahead after making this deal. Well, the prestige alone of owning a Buick Centurion convertible can't even measure in terms of dollars and cents, am I right? Like, there's a really amazing scene where he, they have, like, this big sale at the used car lot. I should mention the, the there are two rival car lots run by two brothers, both played by Jack Warden, the Fuchs brothers. <laughs> One is a total shit asshole, and the other is like a much more sweethearted guy with a heart problem. Kurt works for the sweethearted one. And so anyway, there's a great scene where they're having like this big sale and Kurt comes out and as he meets each family, he sizes them up and changes his name based on 
<laughs> you know, like if they're a Latin American family, he suddenly he's Mexican, or if they're uh, Irish, suddenly he's got a little bit of an accent, and That's you know, right. uh, you know, I'm Rudy O'Connell. You know, just yeah. just a great bit. It's just a really good encapsulating. This guy's a salesman. He really knows what he's doing. Yeah. Anyway, he's very funny, but he's also very driven and kind of a ladies' man. And there's just a lot of things about him that are not PG rated that I think is really interesting and flies in the face of the Disney Kurt Russell. And I think it's one of the first, I mean, he doesn't do Escape from New York for another year. Was it 81? Yeah. Okay. So he hasn't done Snake Plissken yet. He hasn't done his Eastwood turn, you know, which is another pivot yeah. away from Disney. But I just really, I think people, it's a little bit more like a Jack Burton kind of character, except not. It's just, it's another facet for me of Kurt Russell because he's just, he's got all these different things going. I think people think of Kurt Russell as like a big Hollywood actor. And for me, I think of him as like... I mean, he's very much like John Wayne in Big Trouble in China, but I think of him as like a John Wayne in this other way in that I think John Wayne is a much more versatile actor than people give him credit for, and that'll come up later on this list. He just has like, if you look at a Rudy Russo character, it's different than a Jack Burton character. It's different than oh, yeah. McCready. It's different than uh, Snake Plissken. These are all, and Elvis, these are all different things. And I just, so I have a lot of respect for him. And I, again, I, he's very funny. The guy has- Well, if you ever listen to his commentaries and oh, stuff, man. you can't even stop laughing because all he does is laugh. Like, especially if it's him and Carpenter, the big trouble in Little China, I couldn't even believe what listening to the first few minutes because Carpenter would just be talking very dryly. And literally, Kurt Russell can't even keep a straight. He's just like, oh, remember that time? <laughs> and you, Kurt, even John can tell. You're just like, geez, this guy, he's going to live a long life because he's laughed so much. You know what I mean? There's just such a Absolutely. great nature to him. Yeah. And I, I love that Quentin has, you know, taken him in and, and started using him on a regular basis. And I think that'll extend his career. He's in the Fast and the Furious movies. Like, he's fully yeah. in Guardians. Guardians. I mean, yeah. he's fully. No, he's had he, well, so he's benefiting from a generation who grew up on Carpenter films and stuff. Yeah. People who are looking back at him as like, oh my god, I got a cast, you know, Russell. So. Yeah, but Juice Cars, what, what it doesn't get credit for is the screenplay is pretty remarkable. You, you listen to Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis talk about how long they, it took them to write Back to the Future and how you know how intricate everything is. So much stuff backs into itself mm. and, and rolls over on itself and lines up. And Used Cars is like them setting. It's like their. Um, practice bat for that kind of a thing because there's all kinds of things they set up early in the movie that pay off later it's just that classic hollywood screenwriting updated to a much more raunchy you know uh period Uh, the problem that used cars had was that airplane came out right around the same time and that just basically destroyed i mean it took over the culture in terms of a comedy and i used cars is spoofy but it's not what airplane is they're two they're two different approaches i think well there aren't skits yeah surely you can't be serious i am serious whereas that becomes almost skittish yeah Yeah, and i love airplane oh yeah me too but used cars to me is a great movie you know just the idea that you know they (laughs) they just set up all these little things like the fact that the two brothers are against each other and one brother disappears i don't want to get too much into it but there's just all kinds of wild screwball things that are set up i mean garrett graham now wait just a goddamn minute what the hell is this is this a 1977 mercedes 450 sl for $24,000 that's too fucking high! Yes, sir! We blew the shit out of that overpriced motherfucker just the way we blow the shit out of all high prices down here at New Deal used cars. So y'all come on down. One of my favorite performances yeah. from Garrett Graham outside of Phantom of the Paradise yeah. is his performance here. He's got this great character quirk that he's all about bad luck and things that bring bad luck, and he hates red cars. 
And that alone leads to one of the greatest on-camera stunts for an actor that's not a stuntman, as far as I'm concerned. There's a great shot of him almost getting hit by a car on the freeway or on a uh, back highway that is just, every time I watch it, I'm just like, that just about brushed his hand. That's, that's crazy how close that got to him that would never, anyway, it's just a great performance and it's used late in the film as a plot device, his whole thing. Everything just keeps playing into it. And, and there's just a lot of great lines in it. It's incredibly quotable. I remember Tarantino, there's a great interview with him and uh, Zemeckis and he's just talking about how he used to put on used cars like an old record album when he worked at the video yeah. store. And it's that kind of movie. You can just put yeah. it on and listen to it. I remember he, he quoted the Al Lewis uh, grandpa from Munsters as the judge at the end of the movie. And he's like, says something like, you want me to put roller skates on these boys? That's like a Tarantino <laughs> line that he loves, apparently. That's fine. But anyway, I'm getting way off on my. Um, it's a great, it's a great comedy, and it's it's one of the I put up there with things like Lebowski as a total rewatchable. You know, it's been a few years, so I probably is. You said it is on Blu-ray now. Or it's on Blu-ray from Twilight Time, but it's also digital. You can rent it. You yeah. know, stuff like that. It's it's out there, and it's it's great. I mean, if you just watch it from beginning to end, it's wonderful, outlandish comedy. One situation leading into another. There's no dull moments in it. Really. Really, as far as I'm concerned, so, and it's and it's really raunchy and not politically correct in a way that couldn't be done now. And we talk about a lot of movies like that, but but there's just a lot of things that they do that are just wrong, but are still very funny. And I love that you know Zemeckis and Gale, who made one of Back to the Future, is sort of a quintessential American movie, and but is yet quite wholesome in a lot of ways. Yeah. That these same guys could make a comedy that's R-rated, fully R-rated, and very funny and goofy, and you know, I don't know. I just I love that they did both things. Yeah, if you haven't seen this one, this is definitely one to hit straight away. It definitely, yeah, I didn't put it on my list, but now that you're talking about it, it makes me want to rewatch it. Uh, I do have a comedy of sorts uh, on my list, and this this is the only one made by an outsider uh, on my list, as I, t- I kind of spoke about people's visions of America and how weird these visions can be of America. Uh, and this is a movie, I just absolutely love it. It's probably my favorite film by this director, which is kind of outlandish given that it's his only overt comedy, I guess, even though it's so dark, some people might not realize it's a comedy. I think that'd be hard to not understand. Uh, And that is Strozek by Werner Herzog, 1977. This is our town. This is the reason why we named it the railroad flats of all the freight trains that we have here. This is railroad flats. This is so that the trains are going there's all kinds of railroad cars down there too. Freight trains down that way. That's why it became so famous of being called Railroad Flats. This movie, when I literally, it's the first movie that went on my list. As soon as I, any time I even hear the word America, I think of Strozek because the poster for it has uh, Bruno S, the main character, in a, or no, it might not even be Bruno S. I think it's a side, one of the side characters in a giant bottle holding an American flag, and it's just. Like, the only other people who have ever had, I think, quite this quirky a vision of America is actually the Coen brothers, who are, you know, from America. This film is uh, super strange. So it starts actually in Berlin, uh, where an alcoholic uh, guy, who we'll get into a little bit of who plays it, is released from prison. And he basically ends up, and he has nothing, and he's just a complete wreck. He ends up uh, hanging out with his uh, neighbor, who's this uh, very eccentric, uh, Scheitz is his name, a very eccentric character, uh, and and a street prostitute p- played by uh, Eva, Eva Mattis. She's a great actress. And the three of them, life is not going well in Berlin. So the idea comes, of course, if you're... Uh, 
with this three bizarre group of people is to move to Wisconsin. <laughs> My home state. <laughs> I know. And not just Wisconsin. This is the Herzog part of this is that they're also trying to move uh, to the exact town. Uh, Herzog wants it to be set where Ed Gein's mom is buried because him and Errol Mars had made a bet at one point that they were, would meet on a moonlit night to dig up the corpse of Ed Gein's mother to make sure she's real, steal the corpse or something. And apparently Herzog showed up, but uh, Errol Morris never did. And that's where a lot of this movie is then founded <laughs> on the fact that he, you know, is obviously stuck in Wisconsin. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, the movie, it just, the way his outsider view of America, it, it doesn't necessarily gel with how I would view America, but I think it's perfect for like a, a group of Germans who don't even speak English. I mean, the main character in this never is speaking the same language as any of the Americans. And I feel like America's actually, in my opinion, kind of portrayed pretty accurately, especially Wisconsin. Uh, How do you know? <laughs> it's pretty essential. I go to Wisconsin. That's there. That's some, uh, there's some, I definitely want to read a couple of the kind of funny things. No, uh, I've seen it. And by wrote. the way, it's not that far off. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. They're not any, I don't think he's ever, weirdly enough, I think a lot of people would jump to the conclusion he's, it's a satire in America. I actually feel like it's kind of a satire on the Germans in America and, and pointing out, uh, I mean, it is definitely culture clash, which is always a classic, but you know, this is a country of immigrants and this is, these are just people are always going to be moving to America for what in their mind is promised to be a better culture, promised to be opportunities. And those opportunities do exist, but they also don't, if you're a fuck up in one place, there's no, there's probably a high chance you're still going to be a fuck up. And that's what this movie is ultimately about, some fuck-ups who come to America and fuck up, and, and it kind of gets worse for them here because they don't understand what's going on. And it also is somehow really, really funny and eccentric. I mean, talk about, you think Wiseblood's eccentric. My God, when I got to, when I get to Strozak, I, obviously I have a penchant for that uh, that side of America, but I actually need, to, you know, I need to read this from Ebert because I, I really love how he kind of opens this. He's just, uh, who else but Werner Herzog would make a film about a retarded ex-prisoner, a little old man and a prostitute who leave Germany to begin a new life in a house trailer in Wisconsin? Who else would shoot the film in the hometown of Ed Gein, the murder who inspired Psycho? Who else would cast all the local... Uh, roles with locals who else would end the movie with a policeman radioing we've got a truck on fire can't find the switch to turn the ski lift off and can't stop the dancing chicken send an electrician uh it's and and again and yes spoilers probably the ultimate spoiler in the history of movies it ends with a dancing chicken now that uh, the good thing about that being a spoiler is I, I, no one on earth knows what that actually thematically means but the best thing Herzog ever does he always goes yes I think it has thematic meaning and he never says what it is which is clearly as in it, no I think he always says yes it's a great metaphor for what <laughs> exactly the enormity of of their flat brain. The enormity of their stupidity is just overwhelming. You have to do yourself a favor when you're out in the countryside and you see chicken. Try to look a chicken in the eye with great intensity. And the intensity of stupidity that is looking back at you is just amazing. By the way, uh, it's very easy to hypnotize a chicken. Uh, They're very prone to hypnosis. And in one or two films, I've actually shown that. 
and, and I think there's like about the um, the weird sideshow quality of America. Like we can, like you're talking about driving on on long road trips and the weird places that advertise like the biggest avocado, the biggest. There's something about that as a foreigner where that really doesn't exist in most other cultures that I find totally fascinating. And I want to dive like head on into those kind of aspects of the culture. And I think this movie really nails it. I mean, the, the last 15 minutes of this are like up there with the, you know, to me, the greats of all endings, like because it's so abstract and strange and funny and kind of despairing. And yet somehow through that, you can still laugh. It's also, you know, as always said, Ian Curtis is the last movie he ever watched. I, I know in the Control movie uh, where it's playing as he hangs, the dancing oh, chicken geez. was found. So now I don't, I don't know what the real connection there is, but wow. that's that's apparently the last thing uh, he ever. I don't think it drove him to. <laughs> I'd hate to think that this is the movie, uh, but this is like it is a great movie. Like they're they're eccentric characters, funny, and then you know Bruno S. If you're unfamiliar with who Bruno S. is, uh, he worked on two of. Werner Herzog films, um, The Enigma of the Casper Hauser before this. And he was cast in that because he was actually a man released from a mental asylum. And he is just a very strange character. And uh, Herzog didn't believe he was mad, actually, in real life, didn't actually believe he was mad. But he also would say to get into character, he would scream for two hours straight before they could do a take. Uh, now, he also said the same about Kinski, but, uh, <laughs> wow. you know, so and Bru- and he's definitely not an actor. And there's moments where he'll be <laughs> saying delivering dialogue to an actor and his eyes sometimes shift towards camera as if like almost looking for the approval from the director. <laughs> and yet it somehow How works. He's, he's a very what it creates is a very tender non-actor who it's very easy to care about because it, he looks so open to the elements. He looks like he's constantly going to be taken advantage of. And it, and I'm sure, yes, an actor can play that too, of course. Enigma, Enigma of Casper Hauser, which is the less fun version of Strozak. It's a, it's a really good movie, like but, it's, but it's very serious. And it's about a guy who has was locked in a in a room for his entire life. And so he has no language. So it's that great question. If somebody was raised in a room and with no access to language, what would they speak when they came out? It's a very serious, very strange kind of, you know, it is a fairly mysterious film. Whereas Strozak takes that same thing and, and shows this pretty radical uh, comic ability of guys. There's a great scene in Wisconsin where they're, I mean, one of the, I love all the scenes in Wisconsin where it's like, you know, houses that you just drop off, you know, these houses that you put on a trailer and drop, and he, they live in one of those. Double and, wides? Or yeah, yeah, or whatever there, and the guy is coming to, like, realize, because he never pays his mortgage. He didn't ever make a single payment. He, he doesn't realize what will happen, and the guy's, you know, giving him, saying in very concrete terms what's going to happen to him, and he's just talking back in German almost as if to camera, saying, like, I have no idea what he's saying, but I have a bad feeling. You know, it's like, it's this... Uh, fun clash of cultures which you know as an audience so if you haven't i actually think it wouldn't be a terrible first herzog in a lot of ways because no, i think you're right it cuts to the core of i think herzog is very funny in general and a lot of his movies have humor but i do think this is like consistently funny but coming from the bleakness of germany especially the scenes in germany before they get there like you know uh, some bad pimps in that one but uh it this is a really really crazy movie when you get to the end of this you'll thank me for that alone no absolutely um, i can't barely remember the, the ending i remember when all these came out via Anchor Bay, you know, the whole Herzog collection that they put oh, yeah. out. Yeah, I've got that. I remember going through those and seeing, you know, Aguirre and Cobra Verde and coming across that one and being like, well, this is really interesting. This is. We have those two cycles, like, you yeah. know, his Kinski cycle, and this is his like, two films with Bruno S. I mean, yes, to give you an idea, after they lose everything, him and, this, him and the old guy, and the old guy's just hilarious. Like, the old guy's the comic genius of this movie. And, uh, you know, so he gets a gun and, you know, goes to rob the liquor store or whatever and is in one hand holding a giant frozen turkey and the other one has shotgun. And What's this? Don't shoot. 
Ich weiß, auch Sie stecken mit allen unter einer Decke. And it, so it has these, I mean, I would be shocked if the Coen brothers weren't fans of this movie. Oh, I can't believe I think there's weren't. something in this that they would just really respond to. It's that, um, it's true crime element, but it's so ridiculous. And what people do for like 20 bucks sometimes, like people's entire lives come unraveled and they end up getting what, like 20 bucks. And you realize, well, how is that worth, you know, yeah. because no one's thinking about it. But anyway, Strozek's a great movie. And I think uh, Strozek fans unite. Yeah, no, it's not talked about enough at all like that. That's a great pick. Um, okay, so here's my tie. I've got Uh-oh. a tie at my number three, but both films star, star Jeff Bridges, mm. and both films star Jeff Bridges playing a character that's based on a real person. Okay, hold on. Let me see if I can guess Okay, I do that. Right. Uh, I know one is definitely Tucker. Yes. A Man Has Dreams. The other one might be... They're both real people. Mm-hmm. America and him. I don't think I'm going to get the other one. The other one is lesser known. Uh, I'll start with the other one. The other one's called uh, Last American Hero. Oh, I don't know. His name is Junior Jackson. Instead of a white stallion, he rides a black Mustang. He learned about cars running whiskey in the Carolina Hills. He wiped out the pack in the demolition derby. He's beautiful. Kid is beautiful. Make a move on me, I'll rip his lip off, give it to you for a key ring. He tore up the track in the grueling Hickory 500. You don't like taking orders, drive for yourself. He drives his car like he lives his life. Flat out. Look, I won that race fair and square. What's the prize money? A thousand plus extras. Well, invite me in. You look gorgeous. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till I put my shoes on. What sign are you? Oh, Ford, I guess. I had pretty good luck with them so far. From 1973. Um, It's one of my favorites. It's based on a guy named Junior Johnson, who was a real-life moonshine-running dude who turned into a stock car racer. Um, Ooh, almost a Thunder Road double feature. Yeah, it could be a Thunder Road double feature, definitely. That's got your moonshine and driving. Yeah, definitely. This movie is, for Jeff Bridges fans, I think it's one of the ones you should really seek out if you like that sort of fat city Jeff Bridges. It's even more... He's even more like driven in this. He's mm. more a go-getter. Who and, made it? Uh, this is the director's name is Lamont Johnson. Oh yeah, I who I like, but who people definitely don't know. He did movies like One on One with Robbie Benson, which is a great basketball movie, mm. and he did that movie Lipstick with um, the, the rape rape movie, which is real rough, but it definitely has its fans. But I like Lamont Johnson. But anyway, so Bridges plays Junior Jackson. They they shift the name a little bit, but again, he's from a family of moonshine running people. His brother's played by Gary Busey. This cast is will really get you mm. the cast includes ned Beatty again ed lauder yeah, william smith valerie prine and lane smith from uh i always remember him from blue collar but he's in a ton of movies yeah. so anyway it's got the whole you know run up like he starts he's he's me- messing with the cops and then you know he gets the idea to to do a little demolition derby and he sort of works his way up to stock cars and there's some great scenes between him and Ed Lauder. Ed Lauder is like the money man. He's like a guy who sponsors drivers but he wants control and Junior is not a guy who wants to be controlled by anybody so he's very much like Junior, you got the talent but I got the bankroll. 
Now how many loads of white lightning you figure it's gonna take to get you back running? As much as it's gonna take you. I just gotta replace my car. You gotta find a new shoe without chicken shit in his veins. <laughs> You're a hot case, kid. Told I'm gonna whip your ass, along with everybody else. My car don't hold out, I'll have a foot race with you. Well, how about arm wrestling? Whatever by God takes. Dream on, boy. You know, so it's just that sort of back and forth. I just love Ed Lauder as a dick. He's just He's great one general, of the best, right? you know, character actors of all time. Obviously, we both love him from Death Wish 3. Yeah. <laughs> he really is great in that, actually. He I is think. so good in Death Wish yeah. 3. Anyway, I just love Ed Lauder, so he's great. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with the cast, you know. So it's just really one of those movies that makes me think about, yeah, America, the American dream. Uh, a guy who is <laughs> his own, runs his own business and then sort of wants to do it all on his own and ended up doing it all on his mm-hmm. own. And there's a, I just found on uh, YouTube there's a really great documentary about basically Tom Wolfe wrote an article for Esquire magazine in 1965 all about Junior Johnson. Hmm. And there's a documentary that is sort of the two of them talking now, you know, a few years ago about that article and how big, you know, he was, Tom Wolfe was in the conversation with, uh, with Hunter S. Thompson in terms of those kind of articles that those kind of think pieces that were coming out at the time. And this was a big deal for Esquire magazine. This article sort of helped make, put junior johnson on the map hmm. so anyway that's a whole other thing you can go check that out on youtube that's a really interesting thing i hadn't even heard about until today hmm. but so anyway jeff bridge is just really great at playing that sort of aw shucks kind of and yet you know singularly determined kind of character he just he's a tried and true american actor for me uh and one of my favorite actors of all time so how did they tie like was it what was it about the f- tucker because tucker is one i haven't seen in forever well but i remember thinking it was actually a great film when it yeah I, I think again because he's playing a different kind of character but he that one's based on the preston tucker who is this guy who basically tried to make his own car tried to take on the big three and create his own car uh, yeah tucker man in his dream from 1988 1946, Preston Tucker and his family began to build the car of the future. Today. Is there anything you want to explain first about the dogs? Well, I uh, traded the old Packer for them. They would challenge the automotive giants in Detroit. Is there anybody in this room who can look me in the eye and tell me we can't do it? Building a car in your barn is one thing, but mass production, that's something else. The idea that counts in the dream. Coppola directed, and I think it may be one of his last great movies. Mm. You know, um, you could argue they had a couple more after this, but I, I think Dracula is his last great movie. Yeah, so that's after this, I think. But it's right up at the edge, yeah. and there's just something about Jeff Bridges. He's a very manic character. And a character that doesn't seem to want to give in to the idea that you can't do this. People telling somebody you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of actor I feel like that can really pull off that kind of manic optimism. Like apparently the real Preston Tugger was obsessed with this song, Hold That Tiger. So throughout the movie, he's constantly singing it. He's constantly singing, Hold That Tiger. And, and that goes through the whole movie. And speaking of songs, I should just to go back to Last American Hero real quick. The theme song of the movie is the song by Jim Croce, uh, I Have a Name, yeah, which Tarantino yeah. then used in, Jan- in Django Unchained. So I'm pretty sure Tarantino's a fan of that movie. But, but that's a very American song also woven into that movie. Mm-hmm. 
hold that tiger's woven into this movie. I don't know. Again, it, it was like two movies where I've just like, I really like Tucker. I really like last American hero. I want to talk about both movies. They both have the, the Jeff Bridges in common. They both have the automobiles in common. They both are real people. So somehow it felt like, why not put them both together? I'm not saying you should watch them together, although I did. And I thought it was a really interesting hmm. thing to see Jeff Bridges play these two different characters. Um, How many years apart are those? More than a decade. Uh, Last American Hero is 73 and Tucker is 88. So yeah, like 15 years apart. Yeah, so a different guy. Totally different guy, but uh, still the same great actor. And this one also has a really great cast, including our buddy Martin Landau, who's really good. Joan Allen plays his wife. Fred Forrest is a big part of it. Uh, Elias Kateas has a really big role. This is Yeah, yeah, I want to say this is even... Is it before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Because that's always where I remember. Anyway, Christian Slater, uh, Corin Nemec from Parker Lewis Can't Lose is one of the kids. Anyway, it's just a really good hmm. American story. And it's it's really neat to see and read about the real guy afterwards. I, I kind of like doing that with real stories. Sometimes I'll just, you know, there's a big habit of showing you pictures of the people after the movie. And they do some of that. And there's actual, like, there's a movie made about the car that you can find online. So there's just that art converging with real life thing I kind of love. In this case, because it's a man, you know, about my age who who's in a business, uh, the automobiles, which is like the movies, which has Detroit, which is like Hollywood, uh, there are many similarities. And, uh, and of course, you can see the film that way. Um, I find that all the films I work on always seem to be the way my life is at that time, you know. But I can understand that you would see similarities uh, to Tucker's story. And sometimes even me, I'm working on a film and I say it's very strange, but this film I'm working on is just like what's happening to me now, you know. When I was working on The Godfather, I, you know, I was a young Italian-American guy of 27, 28 years old. and. Uh, I started to become more important, more powerful within my own family and uh, within my friends. And I was making favors for this friend or give this friend. And I was becoming like a godfather. In Apocalypse Now, I was in the Philippines and I had all this responsibility. And I began to, to take the position that I could do anything I wanted, that there was no restraint, that there were no limits. And, and in other films, I find that there is this strange coincidence how very often what we're working about really becomes our life. And like I said, any excuse to watch a Jeff Bridges movie, like he, I think he's appreciated because of things like Lebowski and whatnot, but I don't feel like people go back that far. He's actually pretty comparable to Kurt Russell. I think the two of them have similar kinds of career and both our generation thinks both of them as gods. Yeah. So anyone, you know, but there was a time where they're considered like, oh, comic actors or kind of pigeonholed here and there. Yeah. I I would just, I would say if there's nothing else you take away from this show, delve into the actors like Jeff Bridges and Kurt yeah. Russell that have done movies in the 80s and 70s that are little offbeat gems that you can dig out. Uh, yeah, Cutter's Way got a little Cutter's Way, Fat City, yeah. you know, we've talked about them. But anyway, good stuff, both movies. Yeah, they're great. Um, well, I have to see the first one you're talking about. Um, my number two is a movie that I, I just feel incredibly strongly about and think this deserves to be on the Criterion Collection. Uh, this is a film that when... And, the, and I guess this... I can't not get a little political here. This is the film where when Trump was elected, the first movie I posted about, and I still believe that this is the movie we can learn the most from, was uh, 1962's The Intruder by Roger Corman. This man, take a good look at him. He's a specialist. He knows exactly how to turn this quiet town into a hell of violence. The Negroes will literally 
And I do mean literally. Control the South. Are you willing to fight down to the last ditch and keep fighting till this thing is over? The intruder. He made the sleepy town of Caxton his town for his reason. He played on their fears and their hatreds. This town became a headline for the intruder. AKA had a title they tried to make a little bit more money off a lady called I Hate Your Guts. Was it really? Never and, and Shatner claims that uh, because uh, Corbin lost money on this movie that it was actually, that title was aimed at Shatner. This is, I'm not just saying this, this is one of the best films I've ever seen. And it's a movie that I didn't expect that. I expected when I finally tracked this down a few years ago, because it was very hard to find for a long time. I thought this was going to be because of Roger Corman. I thought it was going to be another exploitation film, and I love a lot of his exploitation. But I, my hopes of what this film would become, I was kind of unnerved. This definitely feels more like uh, in line with something Sam Fuller would have made, the mm-hmm. way Sam Fuller. But Corman is going at this as somebody who I, it feels like a, a director, and at this time you know he was just starting out on directing, who put everything, laid it all out in a film. And then got his heart fucking shattered and stomped upon. This movie is the only film at the time that he ever lost money on. But he took so many risks politically, uh, financially with this movie. I mean, it only cost 80 grand at the time. I mean, at the time, that might have, must have been a loss. But uh, apparently now is finally made its money back. Like he, he, he said very proudly after the documentary about him came out. It was like, oh, no, people have finally found this movie. Uh, you know, but at the time, it really, him and his brother, they put everything they had into this one. And what's amazing, so this is 1962, which means it's 50 years old. And yet, tragically, a lot of the stuff you will see in this movie are things we've been seeing in some of the protests we've had in the last couple of years here. Uh, any, any of the racial divide, taking down a statue, just some of the stuff we've seen. It brings this back, and you're like 50 years. But this film's also, it's not just, um, you know, political, racial. It's also got this incredible Twilight Zone quality to it. And that's because the screenwriter and the guy who wrote the book is Charles Beaumont, who is one of the major, probably if not the other major voice outside of Serling on Twilight Zone. And I think that definitely carries through the tone of this, which makes it. And so sometimes a person will talk about a movie like this, and you hear the words politics, and you hear the, and that's the turnoff because you're like, ah, I don't want to be depressed in this moment. I would urge you to see this because it's also, it's also like really just a good movie and an interesting movie, and it has this strange spirit and vibe to it. But um, the main reason to watch this movie is Shatner is phenomenal in this. This is the only time I will even I can even say I like Shatner. I think he's good in Star Trek movies. I think he's funny when he's funny. This is the only performance of his where I'm like, oh my god, what a performance! He, again, uh, I have this obviously a bit of a love of the con man character too in American culture. And this is a guy, and this is why the Trump kind of uh, comparisons are just you just are inescapable. Uh, but a guy, basically, a man in a gleaming white suit gets off a bus. You don't know where he's coming from, but you see him passing, going south, which is very important because he's not Southern. He is somebody from not this situation, not this political environment, coming to this town to basically stir up hate. He comes there, and it's a small town that is about to uh, integrate for the first time. And that's 1962. So Corman is making a movie about something that is actually, again, just kind of like medium cool. He's making a film about something that's actually only just happening. And usually these 
kind of movies are made with a lot of political hindsight and you make it like 30 years later when you're safe. This was not safe at all for Wayne Corman. So he comes to the town. He knows they're about to integrate and his job, you never find out who he works for or what it is. It's like all unsaid. Someone up north sent him down here. His job is basically to stir up the racial tensions to stop the schools integrating. So the black kids will not be allowed to uh, come to the school with the white kids. And he basically starts getting in and he looks great. He's like really, I mean, it's Shatner at his you know best looking. He's wearing sunglasses, wearing a white suit. He moves into this like, and he's, he's clearly above the people he meets. He thinks, you know, he, he listens to some of them talk and realizes kind of their hicks compared to him. And he's well-spoken and people are listening to his ideas. And you basically see him try to put a finger in a whole bunch of different kind of stories here, uh, including a local, like a girl who's 15 working at the candy store. And he's like basically seducing her. So you, then you have this other political side. I'm not going to go there, but just look at the press. It's kind of crazy. Uh, so he's trying to seduce and it is implied that he sleeps with her and she's way underage there is the neighbor in the motel he's in is this uh, set in alabama this is set I'm in I'm uh, yeah no, it actually ends up being i think it's missouri and the reason corn it's set in the deep south but corman wanted to pick a state and i think he picked missouri he wanted a place that still looked like that and had all the feeling of that but was also just north enough to escape if needed because he knew how risky but it, but he ends up in a town where there you know one of the key scenes and it's one of the just if you want to learn about independent filmmaking, I think it's on in the interview on this, and it might even be in the commentary. Utterly fascinating how Corman, there's a, sh- a scene where Adam Kramer, the character that Shatner plays, is giving this big hate speech. And it he's doing it on the steps of like the local church, and he's doing it to hundreds of people. And, and they're all real people. They've all come to listen to this thing. Well, of course, you know, Corman's filming it you know, in wide shots for some parts and then close-ups and parts of the speech that he knew he couldn't get away with are in the close-up done on a day when no one was there. (laughs) And then the day is in the wide. And, but the crazy part is it's like this crazy hate speech. I mean, it's just like literally awful what he's saying. He's really, he's literally, I mean, I hate to say it. I'm not trying to stir the pot, uh, but I mean, it literally sounds like a lot of stuff in those early kind of Trump speeches, a lot of the stuff that's insidious. It's not overtly hateful, but it gets you going, ah. And apparently after his first speech, all the people started coming up to Shatner going, yeah, we agree. It's great that you're coming. They really thought that this is like, they thought it was a pro, like racist movie. And a lot of the people lived in the town. And so Corman and Shatner both realized, oh boy, we got to be careful, you know, with some of the, we're dealing with dynamite. 1962, man, this is dynamite. This is like right in Jim Crow territory. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly, so the way they shot, even shot that, but then there's a scene, there's a flight of the Valkyrie kind of uh, sequence where literally uh, he creates an actual cross burning and you have multiple cars driving down the street with crosses and clans member, a full clan regalia, right? He's shooting the scene in the middle of this town. And of course he waited to like one of the last days to shoot that because he knew they might have to like literally leave town because they'd already had one warning from a sheriff. I knew the sequence that was going to arouse the most feeling was the cross burning and the parade to the cross burning so I held that to the final night and we checked out of our motel we shot the actual cross burning first because it was at a deserted church out in the country but we knew there'd be people in town for the parade and I knew I was on dangerous footing with the town's people so I had cameras set up we'd all rehearsed it in advance and people were yelling and screaming at us we were not certain we were going to get through that parade we got through the parade 
and we just changed a couple of things, packed things, and just drove straight north, three, four hundred miles all through the night uh, to St. Louis. So this is like a guy just like laying it all on the line to make this movie that is just super edgy, and also the Shatner character is trying to sleep with his uh, the the neighbors, sa- traveling salesman who lives in the room next door, his wife who's like uh, treated like she's like this uh, almost oversexed. Character. I mean, it's just it has a sexual energy, it has a political energy. It's the black and white looks like the Twilight Zone, and it just feels like pretty much the perfect filmic allegory for where we are right now. And, you know, um, the guys at Projection Booth, uh, we all jumped on the mics on Trump's inauguration and did an episode on this particular movie. And that's why I, I, I just feel of all the kind of movies we talk about on the show, this one perfectly sums up what we do because this is a, it's still hard to track down. You can get a pretty, a decent DVD. That's all that exists out there. That's got the commentary, right? Uh, yeah, and it wasn't easy to get for a long time. It's cheap on Amazon. Uh, I want to say it's about three or four bucks plus shipping. So I may have to get this. I've been meaning to get this forever because I know you're a big fan. Yeah, it's Charleston, Missouri is where it was placed. Okay. Uh, but segregation was still active. So, I mean, he's making this film about this thing. It. And I know we're talking about with Medium Cool, too, but there's something just so interesting. And that's not the kind of thing Corman would really do after that, you know, after he lost the money. And again, it points to his influences are also all over. I mean, the European cinema, that was such a big influence on Corman that we don't really see in his work. But as most people probably listening to this might know, he's the reason a lot of those movies came to America. It was his distribution company that actually was buying Fellini, Bergman. He's the reason those movies got into uh, cinemas in America. And that's actually where he made a lot of his money in the long run because, you know, it was right at the kind of the height of that popularity. And so this is the only one of his films Films. Uh, Mask of the Red Death, definitely artistically beautiful, same same writer. But this is the one where I can actually see these filmic influences that he was really trying to make an American classic. This is his There Will Be Blood. This is, this is that movie and the fact that it just fell on totally flat. No one was interested because everyone wanted a drive-in film and this didn't play the drive-in. And that's why they, even they changed the title a couple times, but it didn't help at all. So this is one that uh, I just think if you can track it down and if it sounds interesting, you really should jump on it because I think it does not get anywhere near enough credit. And especially Shatner, to be honest, I think that's one of the magic. He has this just tension. He's still Shatner. He's still got this like slightly over-the-top quality, but that in this character is like Perfect. I I couldn't agree more. This is definitely the the single you know most important and interesting movie that Corman ever made. And oh, yeah. I love Corman, and right. I like the good stuff and the bad stuff. But it is sad, and you you can probably hear this story over and over again if you look. A filmmaker buckles down and does something really personal or really tries to make an important movie and nobody's interested. Yeah. And then it ends up with two guys talking about it on a podcast, yeah. you know, however many decades later. And one day we'll get a Blu-ray from Criterion and everyone will notice it, you yeah. know, for a hot minute. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to see Shout Factory bring back their Corman classic movies and with some of the ones they left off like this. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it should happen. And there's a couple of really beautiful images in it. And by beautiful, I mean filmically beautiful, but there is a <laughs> shot of the cross-burning and it like I think it cross fades over his face, and he's sweaty and hot, looking out, realizing he's you know what he's probably instigated, 
and it's one of the most haunting images I've, I think I've ever seen in cinema. And it, and it's just you know it's a it's a moment. And Corman does a few of these kind of overlays, but that moment, if if that doesn't, and that's just part of America. That's part of the history, part of where it. And hopefully, I hope when I watch these kind of things, that's why it shocks me. It's fifty years. I hope those are warning signs. <laughs> when I watch these kind of movies, I I take on the message and go, holy shit! I hope we can learn from that and not go that direction. Yeah. And that's why sometimes you wake up a little disappointed with where we're at. <laughs> you know, not to push it too hard. No, no, but I, I think it's a movie that people should watch right now. I yeah. think it's I think know. it's more timely than most. Yeah, absolutely. I might hazard that for today's society. The intruder would show them a world of about 45 years ago that was much rougher than today's world. I think a lot of people don't know how bad the racial situation was at that time. But it will also show that our progress has only been partial. This problem is still with us. It's been partially solved, but it hasn't been completely solved and it will not be completely solved for a long time. Be strong, children. Not muscle and pride strong. Man strong. And you win this fight, not only for yourself, but for all our people. My number two is another portrait of a man. Mm. And this man is played by Rip Torn. The movie's Ooh. called Payday. It's from 1973. I think we may have brought it up on the show once before, but I've never talked about it at any length. Meet Maury Dan. He's a star, honey. I don't hang around Nashville waiting for Johnny Cash. He's getting along all right. She's a country girl. a piece of the gate next time out. People in hell want ice water, too. He gets the best things in life. We only pass this way once. Might as well pass by in a Cadillac. He's just a fun-loving, fast-living, freewheeling country boy. He likes his cars flashy. My God, is that yours? And his women, friendly. I didn't actually think I'd get to meet you. I think I can fix that. If he can't smoke it, drink it, spend it, or love it, forget it. You and I both have seen this movie. It's one that thankfully is available on DVD, not available streaming that I know of, but was not available forever. I remember I saw this as a double with Cisco Pike. I think, again, I may have mentioned this on the show at some point, which is a really, that's kind of a good American American movie. I almost considered it for this list. But basically, this is, for my mind, and I think to Rip Torn's mind, probably his best performance ever. Uh, And that's saying something, because I think he's a legitimately amazing actor when he wants to There's another crazy one right around the same time. Was it Coming Apart? Coming Apart is... is, Also just outrageous. Yeah. It's crazy. I I don't like that movie as much, but it's it's a really raw and incredible performance. Yeah. Also, um, I think people that are used to the sort of Larry Sanders rip torn, which yeah. is a great rip torn, also right. um, would be surprised by this guy. But but basically, that's he, rehabbed torn later, <laughs> much later in his career. That's possible, yeah. <laughs> Not the guy who was on top of Norman Mailer trying to kill Norman Mailer and Maidstone. I forget oh. about that. Oh man! So this movie felt very American to me. Basically, he plays a country western singer named Maury Dan. And Maury Dan, as we're to understand it, is sort of a mid-level country star who kind of never made it, Uh, at least based on the commentary I was listening to the other night. Because there was a part of me that's like, oh, he's still on his way up. But then you think about it, and like, he's getting older. He probably had his shot and didn't quite make it. So now it's 36 hours, basically, in the life of this guy who is, you know, playing little honky-tonks with his band 
and you get very much a sense of the kind of guy that he is, you know, picking up on girls in the parking lot and just being a general kind of sociopathic scumbag, but still charming the, the way that only Rip Torn can be. But you just go through sort of his night. You start with him on stage, you know, eyeing up some girls in the crowd and, you know, then it goes to his activities afterwards and then you cut to the hotel room where everybody's just hanging out, eating McDonald's and playing cards. Just a very unglamorous look at life on the road as a, you know, a singer in, in the South. And then, you know, there's just like little scenes with, with Torn meeting with his manager, played wonderfully by Michael C. Gwynn and the sort of stuff that they're dealing with. And it's it's just a really remarkable portrait of a man, you know, just just follows him around. He goes to visit his mom, you know, who is not in great shape and they have their own drama. He's got his own issues with his family. Like he stops by his wife's house, you know, they're not together, uh, thinking he's going to surprise one of the kids on his birthday. Uh, He's totally forgotten the birthday. He doesn't even really know how old his kids are. (laughs) Don't you know where the kids are after school? Billy's only six or seven. Billy is 11 Kitty's 13 and Elmore's 14. I swear I don't know whose birthday you thought you were going to celebrate. It's Elmore's birthday, that's who. Well, you're either four months early or eight months late for that one. Look at the things you bought. What do you want me to do with them? Do what the hell you want to do with them, I don't give a damn. Do you want a cup of coffee? The kids will be home for supper by six o'clock. I can't hang around. Well, I think you have to now. I can't tell the kids you were here and didn't even wait to see them. I can't hang around. What the hell? Don't you get them over here. Call on the phone. You haven't got a damn thing to do but take care of them kids. Don't you come in here off the road telling me how to raise children. Don't you do it. I'll lie to them. I won't even tell them you were here. Yeah, it's just like you, isn't it? That's a hell of a way to raise kids, lying to them. What if the neighbors see the car out there? Then you stay and wait for them. I wish you'd never come back. I got a right to see my kids anytime I want to. No, you don't. You're not even their father in. It's really sad. I mean, it's yeah. a really funny and sad and just volatile thing. But yeah, it's just such a remarkable, you know, just overall, just giving you the idea of of the music itself. Uh, Shel Silverstein, you know, where the sidewalk ends and whatnot, wrote some of the songs for the movie. They feel like legitimate songs it was produced by Saul Zentz I I can never pronounce this guy's name but he was the producer who would go on to do One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest Amadeus a couple another music Saul Zentz sorry so Saul Zentz started at Fantasy Records in the mid 50s and then they signed Creedence Clearwater Revival Mm -hmm. in I think 65 so he's got some experience with the music industry, so that's coming from a personal place. It's it's a film when, when you watch it, you're like, well, this is clearly produced outside the Hollywood system. So it can be grittier. It can have an ending that really fucking sticks it to yeah. you. Really remarkable ending. And so it just feels like an anomaly onto itself because of the performance, because of the elements involved. I love that history of characters so consistently chasing their, their version of the American dream that they, they're basically ruining their lives and their families' lives and people's lives in the process, but it's in pursuit of that thing, that passion, that thing they know they can be the individual, they can be there, whether it's, a, there's great ones about rock stars, country stars, you know, film, it's just, it's one of the great American stories, 
is some, the people chasing the dream at the unfortunate uh, consequences that like flame around them, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the collateral damage yeah, when you have that vision and there's a lot of damage in this movie, yeah. you, know, you know, physical, emotional, I won't go into it, but he definitely puts a lot of people in shitty positions and doesn't think twice too much about it. You know, I mean, it, it clearly impacts him. He, the performance is such that you can feel it, but it also is like, well, fuck him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's a great bit I just noticed on this watch where they, his talking to his manager about some shit after the first show, and they're talking about how he might have a spot on the Johnny Cash show, maybe. And he's like, maybe. <laughs> he just gets all pissed about, yeah, fuck yeah. Johnny Cash. Like, <laughs> that guy doesn't want to have me on the show. <laughs> anyway, I just noticed that line this time, and I really liked it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a, a really... Oh, it's directed by Daryl Duke, who did The Silent Partner. We've talked about that movie on the show. Between those two movies, I think you've got a really interesting director, just those two. But yeah, there's a a really amazing scene where he gets into a fight with one of his bandmates about his dog, and that just has to be seen. It's just a really... uh, There's so many... The way that it unfolds, it's it's got this really interesting pace. It's literally just kind of like, oh, he goes, he does the show, he wakes up the next day, he goes shooting, you know, and then... He has to go to the radio station to talk to some DJ that he doesn't like, and they clearly don't like each other, but they have to play it off like they do. It's just all these little details yeah. about the life of a singer that I think are fascinating. But yeah, at the heart is this portrayal by Rip Torn. It's just really uh, mind-blowing. Yeah, he's definitely one of those actors who just feels like he lived the life. And when you're watching him at his peak and his peak roles, he's just totally authentic, you know? Yeah, it comes with a cost, too. Absolutely. <laughs> My number one, this was easy. Some, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes when we do this, we avoid some big movies because we think it's too obvious and we're always trying to pick out uh, smaller gems. Well, this is a little bit of both. I think this is a movie that if one person listens to this and watches this for the first time, then I've done my job. I rewatched this last night. I'd only seen it once in my life, and it was you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, to be perfectly honest. Uh, almost handshake material. Watching it last night, it would probably will go into that, uh, and that is The Last Picture Show. I heard about the ball game last night. 121 to 14. Must be putting near a record. What you think you'd do if you found us? Shoot us, probably. But, Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> Don't be so mealy now. Cover it out! Cover it out! You've got to be men like the rest of them. You know, I'll be pretty enough to be women. You boys can get on out of here. I don't want to have no more to do with you. I've been around that trashy behavior all my life. I'm getting tired of putting up with it. Directed by Peter Bogdanovich, 1971, based on the book by Larry McMurchie. Watching it again... It felt like magic. It felt like what only the absolute best films can pull off. And one of the things I had forgotten about this movie is it has this um, incredible fluidity to it. Every scene moves just fluidly into the next. But it takes you about 20 minutes or maybe a little less before you just realize each scene, each time there's a cut basically into the next sequence, it's probably either days, weeks, months into the next beat. So even though it looks fluid because it's shot in black and white, it's all shot in this small, atrophied, isolated Texas town uh, that's kind of falling apart and coming to an end. Every time a character walks out of the pool hall and then they walk into, the say, the restaurant, it just feels so natural, like it's a continuation of scene, but a couple weeks have taken place. between. So it has this elliptical uh, nature, which is just totally fascinating. You don't really pick up on it straight away. Uh, it's set in 1951. It's a group of high schoolers. It's on one hand, it's a coming-of-age 
story set in a bleak, isolated West Texas town that's definitely slowly dying, both culturally and, and in terms of the amount of people staying in the town. And then on the other side of it, it's about people, uh, the parents of those uh, teens and kind of the, you know, middle age creeping in to some of these characters, how they're handling it. And it's just, as a young person, I love this movie, but I don't think I ever thought about the older people. And I think I was really watching it for, you know, some of this, the birth of stars. We're, we're, this is the third Jeff Bridges film we're talking about. Jeff's great, but he's not even the the, the star of this thing. No. There's so many people who star, but Sybil Shepard's coming of age character is, is hilarious, also incredibly sexy. Uh, you totally see what made her a star in this film. She's really funny because she goes from trying to be like the, the sweet girlfriend to no, we're moving too fast to one character to I really just need to lose it to someone else. I don't care who it is to being kind of the vixen, to being like too smart for her own good, to being kind of like uh, trying to play at being an adult in a kid's world. She's just phenomenal in this film. Uh, but then the older characters watching it this time, I watched this last night, and it really floored me how good a movie this is. Like, I, I don't know if I'm a Bogdanovich fan. I, I like Bogdanovich. I don't know if I'm like, put myself as, oh, he's my favorite director. And then I watch this and go, oh my, this is like Wells making Susan Kane his first film. I feel like this is equally impressive to have a film like this in your early, obviously, you know, he he'd made his Corman film, but this is really like his first film. Targets is a great start. Targets though. is a good start, uh, but, then but, but this so is, different. Oh like, yeah, that's what's really But I mean, this has the same feeling of Kane in terms of something that would last, a lasting document of lives but that's look let me just run through some of the people in this because they're amazing Tim Bottoms is basically uh, Timothy Bottoms is more or less the character you're seeing the film through even though it jumps around he feels like the kind of I guess moral center because he feels things even though he fucks up too and he does things that would be considered wrong he's having an affair with his gym coach's wife played by Clarice Leachman who's just a total shut-in and has lived and her husband's probably gay they probably they kind of imply that the basketball coach uh, you know and so she probably hasn't been sexually active for a long time and he just you know he's 17 year old falls into this affair with her and it's really touching and really sad Ellen Burstyn is who looks great in this she's playing the 40 year old mother of Sybil Shepard and it's implied that she's been having an affair with the greatest human on earth, Clue Gulliger. Uh, that's mostly for LA listeners who oh, man, all I totally know. forgot about that. We, and, and this is okay. So if you live in LA and you've ever been the New Beverly, Clue Gulliger, you know, used to go every day, and he's just one of the most approachable humans you'll ever meet. But the Clue Gulliger you get to know now, which I got to know him, you know, pretty well, is you know he's an eighty-year-old man and he's like the kindest soul you'll ever meet. Well, Clue's also got a real dark side to his nature and in, in some of the stuff he writes, and it takes looking at his earlier film work. So while I'm watching this movie. He comes on screen. And I'm like. Damn, that's a he's a suave looking guy back then. He is like he is tough. He's a bit of a fucking bastard. Like the way he talks to characters in this, you can tell he is like he does not he's he's the least likable guy in the film. Like he's and clearly that's the character. He's really good in it. And then and I haven't even, you know, mentioned the real star of this movie who's who's a supporting character in it. Um but that's Ben Johnson. And Ben Johnson really gets a three scenes, one particular, where he's really got a monologue. It's just one of the best monologues in movies. It's coming so, so much heart, and, the, and Bogdanovich like, was just dying to cast this guy in this film. He wanted him so bad, and Ben Johnson just refused to be in it because he didn't like talking. And so in all the westerns, he likes, I just want to ride and shoot and do action. He did not want to have a, a thing that was built on his actual uh, performance, and uh, luckily they, uh, who was it in common? It wasn't Peckinpah. Uh, no, it was Ford. John Ford talked Johnson because because uh, Bogdanovich did the documentary on Ford he got Ford to talk Ben Johnson into being in it well he said no three times 
Uh, I couldn't figure out who the hell to play the part. It was a key part. We originally thought we'd have Jimmy Stewart or somebody like that. Somebody like that. There was never anybody like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I meant a star. Um, and uh, we didn't even go to Jimmy because I said, you know, it's not going to work, fellas. I mean, we're in this small town in Texas. We've got no names in the picture. And suddenly there's Jimmy Stewart. It's just not going to work. Let's get somebody else who's not a big name. And we had a hard time finding. One day I was looking through the Academy Players um, manual, list of all the character actors. And there was Ben Johnson. I said, Ben Johnson, my God, of course. Because I had met him uh, about six years, seven years before when he was shooting a picture with John Ford called Cheyenne Autumn. And I liked him. So I, I got in touch with him, sent him the script. He called me back. He said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this, Pete. Why not, Ben? There's too many words. <laughs> Well, Ben, it's, it's a great part. You'd be great at it. No, no, Pete, there's too many words, and some of them are dirty. I might want my mother to see it, and I can't take her to see this thing. So I said, well, you really, I really want you to do this, but no, 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 no. So I called John Ford, whom I knew, and I said, listen, I've got a really great part for old Ben, and he says he won't do it. He says there's too many words. Oh, Jesus, he always says that. When we were shooting Yellow Ribbon, he'd come in and he'd go to the script girl and he'd say, any words for me? And if she said yes, he'd sulk. And if she said no, you just got to go ride a horse, he'd be happy. Where is old Ben? He's in Tucson. Well, give me his number, I'll call him. Would you call him, really? He says, I'll call him for you. Fifteen minutes later, I get a call with John Ford. He'll do it. I said to him, Jesus Christ, Ben, Peter's got a good part for you. Why don't you do it? I mean, Jesus, I mean, what do you want to do? Play Duke's sidekick your whole life? Do the picture. So 10 minutes later, I get another call. My assistant comes in and says, Ben Johnson's on the phone. Hey, hello, Ben. You put the old man on me. <laughs> and eventually, and then he said, you'll win an Oscar. You got to do it. And of course, he won the Oscar for Best Supporting. And it, he's just... It, the thing I love about this, it feels to me like if I was going to say, when did the Western film end? I feel like it ends with this movie. And I don't mean ends forever, but I mean, I feel like this movie, even though it's not a Western, it feels in a way about the Westerns. It feels about, A, the last movie shown at the last picture show is Red River. And then this is towards the end of the movie, the little local movie theater that they uh, all go to on the weekend is playing its last movie because a certain character passes away and they're going to close it down and the last thing they show is Red River. And they, I love how they just come out and go, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. There's a great line where they just, hey, that was a good movie. And they're like, yeah, it was a good movie. And it's just, there's something about how this feels like the capstone to that period of old Texas towns, of what it means to be on the frontier. Like it's dying. It's the end of something. But it also does it with humor. There's also hope and optimism about like, oh, well, we can always leave this town and move to Dallas. You know, Sybil Shepherd's character at the end, they keep talking about how she's in, uh, moved to Dallas. Uh, and friendship, the, the friendship between Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges is like, it's cyclical. They fight, they hang out, they go down to Mexico together to get fucked up. It, there's just one of these movies that I think it oozes ten sexual tension, but also has this perfect shift between the teen years, growing sexuality, and then being someone who, if that's all... One once you've done that, once you've 
once you've had sex for the first time and realized, oh, it's nothing, no big deal, what between that and 40 is there? And and that's kind of what parts of the movie are saying, like, especially the characters, like Ellen Burson's character is great. She finds out her, her daughter just, you know, lost it to a much older man and doesn't even, like, chastise her daughter. just goes, okay, well, and they just, like, changes the topic. <laughs> they have this conversation about what they should, you know, do, who she should date next. And it feels so good. It feels so real. But something, just a couple points for those who have seen it even uh, that I think you might find interesting. I didn't realize there was a director's cut in the the original cut I would have seen as a as a teen I, I thought it was fantastic years later i remember hearing a story about clue gulliger when he found out a key scene that he was in because he's not in that much of it but there's a key scene where he is meant to basically take sybil's virginity wasn't in the film and he was so mad he went into the screening booth after watching the test and he threw a reel at bogdanovich's head and tried to take it off and, and was real fiery this is one of those stories you hear about thing well that scene's in this film and that scene is fucking great one of the best just like the way it's shot it's a visual scene and man i can't believe it was ever i think it was cut out it might have been uh, cut out for running time reasons back then it was about there's about seven minutes there's about three scenes that were in the current criterion cut and they are actually i think really important to the movie and i think they really uh, they help a movie that already won a bunch of oscars <laughs> get even better but that scene particularly is really strong on a cinematic level but it's also incredibly cinematic the black and white it just feels like a it's it, it's 1971, nothing, the actual, when they're making this, and nothing about it feels like it's from that time period. It's such a, it's such a wonderful, and, and, from, and talking about America, the reason I picked this is there's something, that's, that's how I think of America. This movie, more than any of the others, I think of it as this small town getting by and people kind of bandying together to survive and keep the local theater running and people ultimately trying to do good, but all being flawed, all screwing up, all fucking up along the way but not with that as the key intention. And it's just, it's really magic. And so I, it is my hope that somebody hasn't seen, sat down to watch it, has heard of it, I would assume, listening to this show, but actually watch it, or watches it again. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. Anarene, Texas. 1951. Nothing much has changed. And then later on, you can watch um, Texasville, which I talked about in our 90s cult movies because uh and i need to see it again now that i've just watched this again to see what the connections are but i saw it you know years ago and thought it was a great movie too not on the same level as this but uh, you know really entertaining yeah no it's a good kind of sequel yeah <laughs> um but yeah that's that's a number one last picture show wow well i hope it has some connections to your number one it certainly does yeah no we we just uh i think it's just a, a yet another sign that this show is meant to be <laughs> because my number one is red river I should have stayed and put a bullet in you. I signed the pledge, sure, but you ain't the man I signed it with. You finished? Yeah. Now you can get your Bible and read over us after you shoot us. I'm gonna hang you. No. No, you're not. What? You're not going to hang them. Who'll stop me? I will. That's great. That is really cool. You were looking, giving me eyes, so I, was, yeah, I thought yeah. that was pretty wild. Yeah, no, I I had a different number one for a while, and then I was just like, I don't have any Westerns on this list. 
what's more American than a Western? Oh, yeah. What's more American than a trailblazing frontier Western? What's more American than the first story of the first drive on the Chisholm Trail yeah. and Howard Hawks? Uh, we were talking before this, we, we recorded this and we're just like, we're trying to come up with sort of all time American directors, you know, uh, Capra, um, Sam Fuller was somebody we came up with Scorsese, I think for me is, uh, but Howard Hawks definitely is. And he's one of my favorites. And I had forgotten, this is one of those movies that I won't watch for five, six years and I'll sit down with it again and go, holy shit, this movie is so goddamn good. Because I love Rio Bravo. So I've seen Rio Bravo a bazillion times and I think that movie's a masterpiece. I talked about it on the first episode. But this is his first Western. This is his first movie, first Western with John Wayne and the movie that Bogdanovich says that Ford saw and said... John Ford had, after all, made Wayne a star in a picture called Stagecoach almost 10 years before he became a star as a kind of an A-list leading man. But after Red River, supposedly, Ford saw the picture and said, I didn't know the big son of a bitch could act. I think it was Red River that gave Ford the belief that Wayne could do something like The Searchers, which is probably the furthest that Wayne and Ford went with a, a character who could be enormously unlikable, the racist son of a bitch. I remember Hawks told me that he was worried, as was Wayne, that his performance in Red River, his character in Red River, would, would be unlikable to, uh, to some parts of the audience. Well, they whip kids to teach them better. They what? Laredo, Teeler, time to that wagon wheel. No, no, they won't. Nobody's going to tie me to no wagon wheel. No, sir. Well, then you'll take it without a wheel to lean against. Oh, Mr. Dunson, I was wrong, awful wrong, but nobody's going to whip me. Turn around, Bunk. Don't do it, Mr. Dunson. Turn around, you'll get it in the eye. Don't do it, Mr. Dunson. I tell you, don't do it. You know, the fact that Wayne could play such a unlikable character in many ways and make it work and make you not hate him at all but, uh, but understand him and even sympathize with him despite the fact that he's wrong uh, it's quite a lot to say for the like innate likability of John Wayne as an actor. And hmm. so that's why we get The Searchers. Yeah. That's why we get some of the greatest films of John Wayne's career. And I count this movie among them because I feel like if you're used to uh, that sort of heroic, you know, John Wayne character, that that this, this guy's in it, you know? Yeah. This, um, also, you get my uh, one of my favorite American actors of all time, and he's my number one film of all time. So for those who have missed our first episode way back when, which is A Place in the Sun, Montgomery Clift, who I think is it's such a great casting opposite someone like Wayne because Wayne is so strong and overbearing compared to somebody like Clift, who is so kind of a sensitive actor. Yeah. Putting them together is really a great dynamic. Yeah, it's, it's really great. It's especially great in this movie, which has those two characters are kind of diametrically opposed and yet they have affection for each other as i would assume the actors maybe did in real life on a professional level even coming at things from a different place but yeah uh monty clift is almost never better than he is in this movie and it's crazy how evil john wayne is how sort of driven he is this is another character like the maury dan character in a lot of ways this is a guy who <laughs> basically at the beginning of the movie he steals a bunch of land to raise his, um, you know, his cattle. Yeah. And there's a great scene where he just basically tells the guy, like, I'm taking this land. Are you Diego? No, senor. I'm or already. is he? At his home across the river, 600 kilometers south. How far is that? About 400 miles. 
That's too much land for one man. Why, it ain't decent. Here's all this land aching to be used never has been. I tell you, it ain't decent. Well, senor, it is for Don Diego to do as he chooses. This land is Don Diego's. What is that river you were talking about? El Rio Grande, but I told well, you tell that... Don Diego, tell him that all the land north of that river is mine. Tell him to stay off of it. Oh, but the land is his. Where did he get it? Oh, many years ago by Grant and Patton, inscribed by the king of all the Spain. You mean he took it away from whoever was here before? Indians, maybe. Hmm, maybe so. Well, I'm taking it away from him. Others have thought as you, senor. Others have tried. And you've always been good enough to stop him? Amigo, it is my work. Pretty unhealthy job. Get away, man. Sorry for you, senor. And there's something that is, maybe I'm being cynical, but there's something very American about that, that I was just like, wow. <laughs> that's really demonstrative in a way that I'm not proud of, but uh, just seems to fit. But yeah, so the idea is that they are sort of taking this herd of cattle to Missouri. I forget where the drive starts now. It could be Missouri. Missouri. I'm sure it's Missouri. But anyway, so it's this really long, arduous journey, uh, and it's it's very difficult, and they have a lot of hardships. There's an amazing stampede scene in the middle of the film. And um, apparently Bogdanovich has got a great bid on the Criterion Blu-ray, which is a really good disc. I just picked it up, actually. It's great. I mean, um, I've got some clips of him talking about this movie, which he says is, I mean, obviously it plays in Last Picture Show. He says it's one of his favorite hawks. I think it's his favorite hawks. And he said that Hawks sometimes says Scarface, but also says Red River. Hmm. And that there was a point when it was the only print of his own films that he owned. Hmm. Uh, apparently he lost it or loaned it out or something. But that says something. I mean, it's a really, really well-made movie. And it's just a great arc for these characters. It's a great journey. It's a great adventure. There's danger. There's <laughs> there's sexual tension. There's, there's an incredible scene where Monty Clifton and, and uh, I forget the other actor's name, are showing each other their their guns and it's one of the most sexualized <laughs> scenes in Montgomery Cliff's gun yeah it's really it's something else it's a good looking gun you're about to use back there can I see it maybe you'd like to see mine nice awful nice you know there are only two things more beautiful than a good gun a Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere you ever had a good Swiss watch? But it's also got Walter Brennan in yeah, another great, great role. Um, a little less jokey than the Rio Bravo role. I love him in Rio Bravo, but this character is a little bit more serious. He's He ends up, there's two different versions of the film. The pre-release version had uh, book inserts, and the version they ended up going with, which is the director's version, is shorter, and it has Walter Brennan basically reading those passages as voiceover. Do you have a preference? I think I like the Walter Brennan version, although apparently there was a lawsuit about the ending. Uh, Howard Hughes thought it was too much like The Outlaw, so Bogdanovich says that if you want to get the full Hawk experience, you should watch the director's version with the voiceover, but the very ending is just cut slightly differently, hmm. so you'd, ha you'd have to watch hmm, both that weird. way, which is kind of annoying, but I prefer the director's version. It's not quite as long. Um, but anyway, it's just one of those incredible adventure movies that you watch it and you just really get a sense of how difficult it was to do something like this. It feels, I don't know, he just really makes it feel, like the characters feel exhausted. They feel stressed out. They feel at their wits end. They're ready to kill each other. You know, I mean, they just, it's really, it really reminds you how difficult 
you know, I, I've got a long commute to work, but uh, watching this stuff just kind of puts things in perspective for me. You oh, know? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And there's a lot of great scenes. Like there's a great scene I was watching where they do, they actually cross a river and there's a scene where Walter Brennan's got the chuck wagon. He goes across and he turns his head and you're like, oh shit, it was him. He crossed the river himself with that team. And you can hear um, Bogdanovich talking to Hawks about it later. He's like, yeah, yeah, he can handle it. We did it a few times, but yeah, I just thought that was a great bit, you know, and just, I don't know, there's something about it just feels very American to me. The idea of transporting beef and everything like that. Well, yeah, even just the foundation of America and the West and looking at the Western genre in general and how it's really this tiny period of time. You know, it's, it feels like most of those movies are set almost in a 10-year period, Yeah. you know, and the formation of these towns. And, yeah, it's it, it's really great. Yeah. Uh, that is pretty radical that we our two films echoed each other at the end of this. Yeah, movie. for those who don't know, we don't we share don't each share. other's lists beforehand, and, so that's just yet, a weird bit of serendipity. We are now three seasons in, and we have yet to pick uh, a same title. Yeah. Is that, that, that have is we never bizarre. done it? I don't, it has yet to happen. Wow. Not on air. There'll be a couple times where like on Instagram, like I, I will say uh, oh, for the record, yeah, okay. this whole time I almost want to do uh, text you prior to the show and say, I hope you're choosing Madawan. <laughs> Because I, I decided I wasn't, and I realized now I already regret that Madawan's on neither of our lists because I can't think of another. Gr- that's a great American no, that's a really movie good to like be about America. But I, for some reason, I just had in my gut. I was like, I think Brian might. Ah. So, but then sometimes I'll see clues on your Instagram, and not yeah. this time. Yeah. So, yeah. so that will be, I guess, uh, another one we can give a nice endorsement. And that's maybe a great talk choice. Another, that's a movie that needs a Blu-ray it's, so it's, bad. It's another great movie. I guess where there's a couple little things I wanted to mention. Um, one film when I think of like Lost America where America's at uh, symbolically. There's a movie where it, I almost put it on this list, but I realize it's not the whole movie I want to, it's actually the last three minutes. And I think if I wanted to sum up where I think, feel things are and when things are at, you know, bad politically or whatever, however you feel, the last three minutes of Electric Glide and Blue. But, and this almost mm. made my list. For a long time, it's on one. my list. Ja- director James William Guercio. Uh, Robert Blake stars. You know, he's a short Arizona motorcycle cop. And it's, it's a really eccentric movie. It's a really interesting movie. And Conrad Hall shot this thing. And there is a shot. And between your pick and my pick is this shot. And somewhere between Easy Rider as well. It's very reminiscent of Easy Rider. But there's a shot with, where he, and I won't even, I'm not even going to say what it is. But what it is, is it's bleak but it's framed against Monument Valley and it keeps pulling back. I'm not going to say what it is just because I don't want to. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Ford in that, obviously. But the way the camera pulls back on that and that image alone, when I think that was, when we decided to do a show called America, the first thing I thought about was that image. And then it was uh, Strozak when when it's coming. It's it's funny, like it's something little, like little details like that. But this is a movie I I think you should check out. Like if you have, this would be a great, you know, looking for offbeat 70s American crime films. And so I, I felt like maybe it had been mentioned in our episode with Josh Olson. I know it wasn't a pick, but yeah, for some not. reason I thought Electric Glide. It might have come up, but there's a great Shout Factory Blu-ray, highly yeah. recommended pick and it's, it And it's, you know, I mean, Robert Blake's really good in this thing. It's a really interesting, because he's also kind of being poked fun at a lot of it. And uh, But man, the ending of this movie, it just as a, as a visual metaphor for right now, man, it's strong. So, you know, I would, I would recommend checking that one out. Yeah, that's a great choice. I, I think the only honorable mentions I had were Pee-wee's Big Adventure, almost oh, yeah. made my yeah. list, but that's handshake territory, so I've already talked about yeah. it. And then I just rewatched The Journey of Natty Gann, a mm. Disney movie with my family the other night, and there's definitely uh, with um, uh, Meredith Salinger yeah. and uh, Ray Wise uh, oh, yeah. as her dad in the movie. Yeah, so that anyway, that one just felt very America to me as mm-hmm. well, and I didn't have room for it on the list, but I wanted to talk about it. If you haven't seen that movie... It's worthwhile, definitely. A, a picture of depressed America that hmm. was oddly um, touching. 
you know, I think I think with this one, when you guys react, because we always love the fact that we're making lists, uh, we always love hearing your list, your picks. I'd love to hear, uh, as you listen to this episode, I'd love to hear the first thing that popped into your mind when you heard the topic American, before you started listening to it. I'd love to just know what that first, because I think if you hear that, uh, that term, something is just formed in your head, and it's a vision of a place, a feeling, and time. I'd love you to initially uh, write those to us uh, on whatever the social media you're doing. I, I'm very curious about that. And then, of course, we, we want to hear some of your picks. I mean, obviously, so many movies we talk about are American movies. This could go a million different ways. I, I think the themes kind of follow the timing, and in this case, this is where, where we're at. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it feels good to be back. You know, it's, uh, we're shake off the rust today. Uh, <laughs> we're coming back with uh, all we'll say is our next episode will be coming out around February 14th, around that time. So that's May- all may not have something to do with the topic That's, who knows you know, maybe we uh, go against the topic you never know and uh yeah th- we just thank all the people who helped us kind of get kickstarted again uh this season uh obviously a big thank to the pink smoke guys for uh jumping in with us on this idea of collaboration which i think is gonna be a lot of fun and obviously our uh, podcast family at the now playing network all of them uh super cool to get this uh, back on the road and uh, have all that support yeah we hope this is a an enjoyable kickoff to this third season and we're almost at, we're getting really close to a full year of doing this, which is kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, 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 which is crazy. It feels like we've been, it feels like a lot longer in my mind. Like, <laughs> oh, we've been doing Pure Cinema for the last few years. And I'm like, oh, no, it's only been a year. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. But, uh, yeah, the main thing is thanks for listening. Uh, please, if you feel inclined and, and dig the show and want to tell people, uh, rate on the iTunes and uh, wherever you can, because it really does help make the difference. Yeah, rate on iTunes. Tell anybody you can any way that you can, as uh, Karina Longworth says. Tweet about it, you know, put a post on Facebook, anything you can to kind of make people aware of the show because we'd, we'd still feel like it could be a little more widely known and we hope more people will find the show because of this merger. And uh, and again, if you like what we do, check out the Patreon. It's a, it's a direct way to support the show and we have lots of content that we put a lot of energy into that we'd love you to hear uh, as, a, as a reward for your help. And uh, yeah, go watch some movies. Please. shall it be? All. Let me close early today. Every morning, every night, whether I'm writing or directing, preparing something or thinking about it, whether it's a drive or a talent or a hobby or fun, it's to hit hard on one word which only the camera can really do, and that's emotion. There is nothing that can get as close to an eyeball where the entire one eye, where the pupil of an eye can fill a screen. That's why, to me, it's, it's one of the greatest arts in the world. And as far as I'm concerned, to give you an example of what you can do with a camera, and you can do anything. And we are now only in the early ages, both of civilization and movie making. Imagine 500 years or a thousand years from now. Oh, oh, they will laugh at this like gladiators fighting in a coliseum.